It's time to get away in a new Hyundai vehicle during the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event at Woodhouse Hyundai. The Hyundai lineup of sedans and SUVs has the capability you need and technology and features you want, like the all-new 2023 Hyundai Palisade and Hyundai Tucson. This holiday season, get into a vehicle that will give you confidence with Hyundai Owner Assurance, America's best 10-year, 100,000-mile warranty. Visit us online at WoodhouseHyundaiOfOmaha.com. Hey everybody, this next one is super important. This is about a guy that literally came from nothing and built himself an empire. This is important shit because there are so many people in the U.S. today that feel that they don't have a chance or they're getting cheated and they can't make anything of themselves. That's complete bullshit and this is proof. Everybody has to start somewhere. Generally, it works out better if you start from the bottom. Love you guys. Thank you for always being here and supporting me. Enjoy the show. I had been in another shootout where I had actually hit somebody. Where'd you hit him? Uh, shoulder, leg. Getting crazy, baby, chill Don't medicate, just meditate You waking up now, well, baby, you hella late Educate, look at what's going on Let it resonate, accelerate Find your inner hunger like you never ate Agenda is to push the hate Separate and segregate Don't celebrate quite yet The storm is coming, cue for heaven's sake And I hear my mom crying in there And a few minutes later Cars just start pulling into the driveway and they come in, family comes in, they sit me down, they're like, your dad's no longer with us. Intimidate through fear and force, forcing us to sit and wait. Till we come together, congregate, and then we liberate. Praying that you give me strength to find some love amongst the hate. Marching on these streets of blood. We're getting into the biggest cocaine bust in Nashville history, which was... Maybe still to this day. All <laughs> year. We're talking about a special delivery of, of cocaine. They're all meant for sale on the streets, but a tip led investigators to this situation. The bust happened here in Nashville. Metro PD and DEA agents following these. behind this guy's album. We done put a dollar. That means the people are speaking. So we released it. Next thing you know, whew, right back to the top. I'm like, what is going on? Every viral video. Digested, suspected something's going on, but chose to just neglect it. Deflected by 10 people hear it, and it brings them closer to God and makes them stronger and makes them rally up and fucking feel strength right now in this time of uh, where a lot of people are feeling weak and vulnerable and afraid and fearful. If this gives just a handful of people a little bit more oomph in their fucking fight, then I'm happy. I get asked all the time, what is my EDC? For those of you that don't know EDC, that's everyday carry. So I'm gonna show you this one item that I picked up a couple months back that I've been carrying around every day. My new EDC wallet, it's called the Ridge Wallet. What I like about this wallet is 
got RFID production for your credit cards. Put your cash in here, super sleek, and it's got a lifetime warranty. Saves a ton of pocket room, all right? So here's the deal, you can go to ridge.com slash Sean, use code Sean and get 10% off on your order. Also, let me tell you about the Bronco giveaway. With every dollar spent on the website before September 30th, you'll be entered to win a brand new upgraded Ford Bronco. Or if you don't want it, just take the 75,000 and put it in your new Ridge wallet. Go to ridge.com slash Sean, use the coupon code Sean for 10% off. Thank you Ridge Wallet for sponsoring the Sean Ryan Show. Struggle Jennings, welcome to the show, man. Thank you for having me, brother. It's so honored. Right back at you. So just a brief introduction. You grew up in a low-income family. Mm -hmm. Your grandpa was Waylon Jennings. Your dad died when you were 10 years old. You're a former gang member and drug dealer. In fact, you were the biggest cocaine bust in Nashville still to this date, I believe. Maybe so. Maybe so. Yeah. Uh, I haven't kept up with it in a while. But <laughs> <laughs> right on. You're a rapper, a father of seven. You own your own record label with artists underneath you. You show a lot of patriotism for the United States of America. And God, We Need You Now was number one in the charts for how Multiple many? Multiple weeks. Um, weeks and all? iTunes months. Um Billboard two weeks, two weeks, two weeks in a row. I think it actually hit number one, maybe three or four times, but number one for two weeks in a row. Uh, even the week that Drake released his album, which had millions wow. of dollars of promotion behind it. At one point I was number one and he was number two through 20. Damn. On songs. Were you expecting that to happen? Absolutely not. No. No, not. We had actually dropped the song nine months before that happened. And it had cool momentum, a little bit of steam, got a bunch of views on YouTube. And then it started to die off and we started working on We actually released another song or two. And then out of nowhere, I get a call like, hey, man, you're number fucking one on iTunes right now. And I was like, get out of here. And they're like, no, for real. Like, the song is number one. And... Uh, Number one on iTunes out of all the out of out of everything everything all genres, damn, independent. No, we didn't put a dollar behind it marketing wise. It was literally a song from the heart and the people speaking up. That's incredible. Yeah, it uh, caught wind. Like all the videos of you know all the it, it kept recycling because of all the issues that were going on in the world, you know, back to back to back. And it would just continuously, this is, yeah, I have to cut this off. Baby, if anybody calls you, just let them know that I completely cut my phone off. Um, yeah, so it just, it kept cycling because these, new issues were happening and people were using it as their battle cry. And behind all the videos, 
you could hear God, we need you now every time. And uh, it was surreal. Damn. So many monumental like videos that went viral and that's cool, but it's the meaning behind the videos, you know, seeing just the destruction or, or the pleads of, you know, people putting these videos together and the flags flying and my song behind it. It was just a, a whole different animal. Damn, that's cool. There's just got to be so much satisfaction and and in, in multiple different areas oh, where it's, sure. where it's not just success as a as a musician, but yeah. it's also the message behind it, the people rallying, and the time. I mean, what what that was 2020? 20, 2020, 2021 is when it hit number one. Yeah, we released it in 2020, and it hit. Uh, hit number one in 2021 damn and yeah the timing you know when that came out i remember it was just it was perfect well i guess it it had been out but it just caught a wave and took off yeah we released it in 2020 you know when everybody was fighting you know to to gain some kind of ground and then 2021 you know with them pulling out and everything going crazy um, in the Middle East. And then then with the Canadian truckers, again, it shot up. Um, so it was just, you know, every time that something big would happen, people were just gravitating towards that song. And uh, watching something that you put out and you create, you never know how people are gonna latch onto it. You know, it's just gonna fly over their head because this is, this is from my heart. This is from um, an idea that I have or a feeling or an emotion that I have. And you never know how that's going to translate with fans. Yeah. So when it does, and then it does it in that much of a meaningful manner, you're just like, you know, it feels good. The satisfaction, like you said, the satisfaction and being able to be a part of history like that is the best accolade beyond any kind of award that I got hanging on my wall or, you know, any amount of money that I make off of it. Those are the moments that you you feel like you did something great. Yeah. Well, we'll get into that more yeah. towards the end of the interview. Yeah, for sure. Everybody gets a gift. Oh, wow. So, so. I see all these cool knives on your wall, and I was like, man, I should have bought him some. I got a really nice collection. I actually just got this one. Um, it's Montana Knife Company. Nice. Have you seen them yet? Yeah. Uh, Seth Ferrochi. I just went and spent some time with him, trained with him. Um, you familiar with him? No, I'm not. Axe and Sledge and American Roughneck. Um, he's a bodybuilder, just a tough Pittsburgh a man's man, yeah. you know. He's uh, a bodybuilder, and now he's uh, owns probably the fastest growing, definitely my favorite supplement company called Axe and Sledge. Oh wow! There you go. We we're just talking about sugar, so yes, you know, I'll get you some more of those for your, for oh, your these family. Are amazing. <laughs> I can only fit so many in a box. Gummy bears. <laughs> My favorite. 
I'm, that's, that's my thing too. I love uh, like fruity. That's my thing, like over chocolate and shit. It's like, cool, dude. Well, you dig big, those. My biggest vices are literally fruit snacks and uh, peanut butter and jelly. <laughs> nice. <clears throat> and they told me I could lose weight and stay fucking strong eating peanut butter and jelly. That's all I'd eat. Let's get into your background and in, in your childhood. I did some research on you, and, and that was just a fascinating uh, piece of content that I consumed. Uh, Talked about your backstory and your upbringing, and and how you got to where you're at today. So I know you grew up here in Franklin. Yeah. How was that? Yeah, no, it was. It was great. You know, the first first ten years of my life. Uh, looking back was completely different than the next 30 but it set us it planted a seed and it, there was a purpose for every you know every phase of my life there's definitely been a purpose as i go back and analyze it um which i try to do all the time you yeah know, to know where i want to go where i've been remember where i've been without losing sight of where I'm headed knowing I don't want to go back to where I've been, you know, so trying to make the right decisions and moves throughout my life to continually progress is definitely important. So I, I analyze it a lot. Um, first 10 years of my life, uh, my mom and my, my mom had me at 16. She was the daughter of Waylon Jennings and Jesse Coulter. Um, actually Dwayne Eddy was her biological father. And, uh, he was married to my grandmother, Jesse Coulter. And then Waylon and Jesse were putting the studio together to the same record label and ran off in the sunset together. So my mom was adopted by Waylon at an early age and um, was like her father. Uh, my grandfather, Dwayne Eddie, who's a famous guitar player and musician, he's in Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Uh, he actually still lives here in Franklin. Oh, really? Yeah. So. Are you guys tight? Uh, you know, I grew up. He was my grandfather. Loved him. Loved my step grandmother, his wife, Deed. Uh, super close. Growing up, life kind of pulled us in different directions. Um, still, I just talked to him recently. He just reached out to me. He reached out to me while I was in prison, and I wrote him, you know, a long letter back and. Love him to death. He was definitely a, a great inspiration in my life. Um, you know how it is. You know, just some family you uh, see eye to eye with and some you don't. You yeah. know? And we had a, a few issues, not me and him particularly, but um, that just kind of, you know, put that a little bit of wedge between us. But, you know, I love him more than anything and um, been trying to see him since I've been home, but he's been battling with, uh, he had a couple strokes and, you know, dealt with a lot of health issues. So they've been kind of being careful about who I was around him. So, and I travel a lot and, you know, some people just, some people, you know, they're a little bit more fearful. It's different times now. Yeah. Different times now. And I'm, I'm not like, I'll walk up to anybody in a room of a thousand and shake your hand, look you in the eye, you know, um, but so 
let's see where we're at. Um, growing up. Growing up here in Franklin. My mom and my dad, she was 16. Uh, he was 18. They met at the skating rink. My dad was an old West Nashville bad boy, good old boy, you know, um, drove fast cars. He was the type of guy that uh, would buy stolen guns from his friends that were thieves and sell them to his cop buddies. You know, he was just one of those, like, everybody loved him, give you the shirt off his back, um, come home two hours late from work, soaking wet, where he pulled over on the side of the interstate to help somebody change a tire, you know, just one of those guys. And, uh, but he was, you know, he was wild, old West Nashville, born in severe poverty, uh, big family. Um, so him and my mother met at the skating rink. She was going to a private school. Some friends had told, got her to come to West Nashville to the big skating rink. He was the king of the skating rink, you know, in high school. So they met, had me. They lasted about four years. Uh, my grandfather, Waylon, had bought them a house here in Franklin to live and to have, you know, a place. So I guess I was about four when they split up. So then my mom was just a single mom. Uh, she sang backup for Waylon and just went through a couple really abusive relationships. She was married for two years to a guy that, you know, just beat the hell out of her all the time. And finally that came to an end. Did you see all that? Yeah, I saw it. Uh, you know, I heard it more than I saw it. There's a couple times that I can vividly remember, you know, seeing him. There's one time in particular, she had been traveling, singing back up for my grandfather. And I came home from school and saw her car in the driveway. So I like rush up to the house, ride my bike, get to the house. And front door's locked, I run around the back. And when I look through the back window, trying to get through the sliding glass door, he's just in there beating the shit out of her. And I ran next door, called my dad. And uh, so that's one moment that I can really remember, like vividly watching her beat the hell out of her. Watching him beat the hell out of her. And so like, you know, I. I beat it into my boys now like you never put your hands on a woman uh one of the last things that i can remember my dad really telling me was that is your job on the face of this planet is to care love protect the women in your life yeah they're the givers of life they're the ones that birth children like they are the superior it is your job to just be the guy that works his ass off protects her and make sure that she's got everything she needs so, and then being raised by a single mother, of course, my grandmother, Jessie's, you know, she's my rock. So I was raised by a lot of women. Uh, so, you know, she went through some abusive relationships. How'd she get out of them? Well, she finally, I, I remember there was a tipping point. Uh, my dad beat the hell out of him. Um, my grandfather came over there. My grandfather Waylon came over there and kicked him out. Told him, don't come back. Um, and there was a few of those tipping points until it finally was like he was just gone. You know, I was nine, I think. And uh, she finally got out of that relationship. Um, shortly after, uh, I was outside playing 
actually at Devin's house. I was outside playing football with a bunch of friends and my mom calls me or yells out the door, hey, your dad's on the phone. And I was like, well, tell him I'll be back. I'll call him when I get back in. Um, and when I come home that night from playing football, I never forget, I remember like it was yesterday. I came in, sat down, had a friend of mine that had been playing football with me, he came in the living room. We turned on Roseanne, TV show. And I hear my mom crying in there. And so I go and I listen and she's bawling crying. So I tell my friend, I had an aunt that had cancer at the time. I told my friend, I was like, hey, I think you need to go home. I think my aunt died. You know, she's got cancer. <clears throat> and a few minutes later, cars just start pulling into the driveway. And they come in, family comes in, they sit me down. They're like, your dad's no longer with us. All right. So they had told me that it was a suicide. I lived with that, re that regret and that, um, that feeling of, you know, that pain of what if I would have answered that phone because they told me it was a suicide. What if I would have answered that phone? Would things be different? Would my dad still be here? Uh, How long did you struggle with that? My entire childhood and teens to the point where I was suicidal. Damn. Most of my life, you know, my dad killed himself. I was going to go out the same way. Every time I, you know, hit a big roadblock in my life, which we'll talk about a bunch of those, uh, first thing I would do is, you know, put a gun to my head, you know, and uh, I actually even pulled the trigger before I misfired. So, um, I actually one time was sitting in a hotel room ready to blow my brains out and the people at the hotel are beating on the door because I'm in there six hours past. I'm supposed to be in there. I don't have the money to get the hotel room again. Shit. Uh, same day I found out that I had my first daughter was about to be born. Damn. So definitely a, a huge turn in my life. Uh, crazy part about that was I struggled with it until my uncle, my uncle Tadpole, who's my dad's brother, he got custody of me when I was 15. <clears throat> my mom just couldn't control me anymore. And, um, you know, I was running around. I was a gang member, you know, out breaking into cars, selling weed, you know, doing everything that you, that a teenager, you know, living that life does. But uh, my uncle Tadpole finally, I was 18, looked at me and said, you know, your dad didn't commit suicide. And I was like, what do you mean he didn't commit suicide? He's like, he didn't kill himself, boy. And he's like, the autopsy came back. There was no possible way he killed himself. The angle of the gun, there was no way that it actually, that was, you know, the reason of his death. And I was like, so you're telling me somebody killed my dad? And he was like, yeah. And I was like, well, why would you let me live all those years with that regret of feeling like I could have done something different and my father still be here. And he said, son, I would have rather you live with regret than revenge. So I'm 10 years old, dad's gone. Uh, my grandpa's Waylon Jennings. So he literally walks into the school and goes, hey, 
Just let y'all know he's not going to be here for the rest of the year. His dad passed. See you next year. You know, no, I didn't have to do any schoolwork. I didn't have to pass the fifth grade. I'll just see you next year, you know. Um, and I was, I was, I went over there for a few weeks to Wayland's, stayed there. He lived right here in Brentwood. Stayed there, you know. He'd take me and my Uncle Shooter, who's just a year older than me, he'd take us to Toys R Us. And, you know, we had all the laser tag and all the, you know, cool stuff. And uh, then going back home, I didn't have to go to school. So I'm riding around the neighborhood on my bike. The only people that aren't in school are the high school kids skipping. Well, they can't leave their house. So because they'll get caught for truancy if they get caught out walking around, I got the free pass. So I ended up becoming the neighborhood courier. Right. I'm the guy that, you know, you got these kids that are huffing Scotch guard in high school. They'd send me to Kroger with five dollars to go get them two cans of Scotch guard or whatever it was, you know, or you, you got, hey, we, you go pick up this bag of weed from this guy, you know, on the other side of the neighborhood because they can't, you know, they didn't have cars. And, you know, so and I've got this free pass. So I'm just doing whatever the high school kids want me to do, kind of running around the neighborhood. And uh, didn't realize that that was the start of a long uh, career in trafficking. Damn! So that was t that was a ten that years was a old. Ten. Did you even know what you were I buying? Had no clue. You're just, I mean, just whatever the cool kid said. Literally, just the messenger. Just yeah, I'm just riding back and forth, you know. Um, and so you know that that went on for a little while. Waylon, uh, that next year, sixth grade, put me in BGA. Battleground Academy here in Franklin footed the bill and um, for me to go to BGA and it's like suit and tie private school. Um, I made it about three quarters of the year and then some guys tried to jump me and a friend, uh, older kids tried to jump me and a friend in the basement of the uh, gymnasium and we fought back as well as we could. I picked up a fire hydrant and was swinging the fire hydrant at the guys that were trying to, you know, they were just bullying us, picking on us because we were younger. And then I sprayed them with the fire hydrant. We ran. Well, I get expelled because of hitting one of them with the fire hydrant and spraying the fire hydrant. And they're like, you know, football team, high schoolers. We're, you know, middle schoolers. Of course, they took their word over ours. And, um, so I get kicked out. Uh, my mother decides that she's going to get into another relationship. Just got out of that terrible divorce. My dad just died. Here she is jumping into another relationship with a guy that she had met. And my grandpa Waylon was like, Jenny, no. Like, stop. Just take some time. Work on your career. My mom's got one of the most beautiful voices. And, uh, you know, work on your career, leave these fucking guys alone and, you know, just, fo you know, focus on your son and your career. She didn't want to hear that. You know, he said, well, how about this then? That guy's not moving into that house I bought. You know, I'm not going to have no freeloading guy moving in um, 
because he was a musician also, um, the guy that she was dating. And so she moves this guy all the way from California to come be with her. And Waylon's like, absolutely not. And she's like, well, you're not my father. You know, and Waylon's been raising her since she was a baby. Yeah. So that, of course, you know, in turn, my mom was like, you know what? I want to do it on my own. I'm going to show you I don't need your money. You know, I'm going to go out here and get it on my own. Right into low-income housing. Damn. So where I had had this not picture perfect, you know, because, you know, my father being murdered, um, you know, running drugs and, and stuff for all the kids in the neighborhood. Like, definitely not picture perfect, but a very stable environment, you know. Um, wasn't the worst, worst childhood a kid could have, for sure. Moving out to Nashville and moving out towards the Hermitage area. Um, complete culture shock. Yeah. Uh, we were now living in an apartment. Um, wasn't long there before my mom woke me up, bloody nose, black eye from this new guy saying, we got to get out of here, you know? Um, so then they split up and it was just me and my mom uh, living in a one bedroom. She took the, at one point she had took the living room with a day bed as a bedroom and I had the bedroom where we swapped up, you know, cause we moved apartments. My mom had that, she had that thing in her that like, she didn't really know how to face shit head on without changing everything. You know, it'd be like, we need to change. Yeah. So we moved a lot, you know? Okay. Um, like, we just need a fresh start. We just need to change, uh, which is very easy to do, you know, and I, I completely understand the concept, but I never really had friends because I was always the new guy, you know? So yeah. was, I was always like trying to fit in or just into a new situation, you know, um, didn't really have a lot of friends that I like grew up with and got that, you know, they got that experience to have friends all the way from elementary to high school. I went to four different high schools, went to three, four different middle schools, five different middle schools, you know, Holy shit. Um, but then moving out to Hermitage immediately, I got wrapped up in the gangs. Um, how did that happen? So, the original way it happened, I was going to DuPont Tyler Middle School. And it's funny, I work out with a guy now who went there at the same time. And we've been friends for quite a while. Um, didn't really know each other. Like, I, I knew who he was. He knew who I was. But we weren't really, like, friends back then because he, he had grew up there. And he was, like, friends with everybody. And he was one of the cool guys. And I was just another new guy. But he... uh we just had this conversation and talked about this the other day and we're reminiscing on those days. So just got there. There was this girl in science class and she would talk to me every day. Like nobody really talked to me. I was new. Nobody really knew who I was. Um, I had plaits in my hair, little cornrows and stuff, braids, you know, pants hanging down around my knees. And um, nobody really knew who I was. So there's this girl that she would talk to me every day. Well, all of a sudden, 
you know, she's telling me about her boyfriend and, you know, we just talked every day for a couple weeks. And I had met a couple guys, you know, that automatically kind of clicked with and I'd hang out with them after school sometimes. And um, there was a big family of them called the Hardy Boys. There's a bunch of them uh, in the neighborhood. And <clears throat> so I guess her and her boyfriend had got into it and she had told him, well, there's a new guy at school. So I didn't even know this was going on. Um, I hang out, stay after school with these new friends that I met, uh, Philip Hardy and Rod Hardy, uh, Philip Hardy and yeah, Rod Hardy and Tony Hardy. And I hang out with them after school. When I get back to the apartments, they're like, hey, this car full of guys followed our bus home and they were looking for you. They're looking to jump you. And I'm like, like, I didn't know who it was. I had no clue what it was. So the next morning I tell these new friends that I got, I'm like, hey man, I heard it's like some guys tried to uh, follow my bus home yesterday. So they give me a 38, 38 pistol. Damn, how old are you? 12. 12 years old, you getting handed a 38 yeah. pistol. So I got this little 38 and uh, I put it in my backpack and I carried it around for a few days. You know, there's like rumors going around school. Oh, they're fixing to get you, they're fixing to get you. And so I'm just like trying to be cool, whatever. Um, walking out one day and I see him there. I can still picture it right now. And I know everybody that was in the truck now, I've been friends with a bunch of them. We just buried one of them uh, from a drug overdose not long ago. Um, but it was Chris Mangrum and, you know, uh, Jimmy Womack, which is Worm, a good friend of mine that just passed away. And then his brother Sam was the one that was dating the girl. So they're all sitting there in a little red S10 pickup truck. There's about six of them in the truck and they're waiting for me. So I can remember like it was yesterday, it was tunnel vision. And I just see it. And so I reach in my back and I pull that 38 out and I've got it behind my back. And all of a sudden I just hit the ground. The school cop was just leaning up against the pillar, <laughs> against the brick pillar. And I just, here comes this little kid walking by with a gun behind his back. Holy And he literally shit. got me right there. Took the gun from me, put me in handcuffs. And, uh, of course, once again, Waylon had a lot to do with me not going to juvenile for long. But they kicked me out of Metro Public Schools. So we had to leave that school. What and, were you going to do? Were you going to wait for them to do something, or were you just going to? I was probably going to pull it out, and, you know, at that point, I had never shot a gun. I was ready to, though. Like, I, I was going to protect myself. Like, I, I had it in my head. Like, if I'm not going to get beat up, I'm not going to let them jump me. Um, I had played Cowboys and Indians enough in my life that I, would, I probably would have shot one of them. Yeah. Uh, you know. Uh, but I don't know. I've never had anybody ask me that. I don't know what the hell I would have done. I might have dropped the gun and ran. I might have shot. I might have, uh, they might have all backed up and I might have took off running, you know. 
But um, so they kicked me out of Metro Public Schools for a year. It was like a no, a zero tolerance policy with a handgun. And so my mother takes me to um, Mount Juliet, which is like the next town up. And she enrolls me in Mount Juliet Christian Academy. So I get there and here I am once again, you know, little thug, nobody knows who I am. Now I'm a whole nother culture shock. You know, this is like country boys with like big jacked up trucks um, at a Christian school. But we lived in this one little, it was an apartment complex, again, based on your income. And it was like just one little strip of one way in, one way out apartments. And uh, it was the poor part of, you know, Mount Juliet. Um, just me and my mom at this point again. And so go to the school. I'm there for a couple months. They say, hey, look, because uh, at this point I'm in eighth grade. They're like, if the lights go out in the eighth grade hallway, just stand up against the lockers. It's just the high schoolers coming in. You know, they'll come in and knock stuff off the walls, push a couple people over and run out the other side of the hallway. Just like a hazing thing. So lights go out. Uh, they're, you know, I see them running in. I just lean up against the locker. I'm like, you know, whatever. And they stop right at me, grab me. And I'm like trying to fight back and they're like holding me down. And I could feel them just like, it was like stabbing in my forehead, you know? And uh, I guess it went on for about a minute or two. And then they let me go and they took off out the hallway. So I went to the bathroom and they had carved in my forehead. And Are you shitting me? <laughs> yeah. And how, how old were you? I was 12. That's when I was in eighth grade. Holy Quite shit. Right at 13, probably, at this point. And so, of course, you know, the teacher sends me to the office. I'm like, I got blood coming down my face. And it, it I don't know if it was, a, I don't think it was like a knife per se, or maybe a, a pen that was like super dry or whatever, but they like etched it in there to the point where you could read it for, you know, a month or so, a couple of weeks, a few weeks or whatever, as it was scabbing and healing up. Uh, but it was their senior soccer team. You know, they didn't have football at that school. They just had soccer. So it was like they were the, you know, the, the soccer team that was winning the championship, you know. Yeah. So it was one of those things they just got demerits, the same thing you would get chewing bubble gum. Well, around that time, I was still hanging out with the guys from the last school, you know, that I had met. And I went to the Hermitage Lanes every single weekend. It was like this bowling alley. And then there was a movie theater across the street. So we get dropped off at the movie theater uh, by our parents, you know. And then you'd walk across the street to the bowling alley where all the high school kids and everybody, you know, hung out. And I had told them, you know, they're all gang members. And I had told them, like, man, I want to I wanna be a part of that. And one day as I'm walking through, six guys come out from the bushes and they're like, you said you wanted to be a part of it, let's go. And sat there and I got jumped for six minutes by six people, just fighting back, you know, boom, boom, boom. 
um, trying not to hit the ground. Every time I hit the ground, I'm trying to get right back up. And, you know, ended with a hug and went up to the up to the lanes, to the bowling alley, you know, got a coat, hung out, and, you know, started that path of, at then, then after that point, it didn't matter what neighborhood I went to, where my mom moved me to, I had people there. Yeah. You know, I wasn't, I wasn't just a new kid. Okay. I'm like, oh, you're... Initially, why did you want to join the gang? Was it for protection? You were tired of getting fucked I think it was with? Just, I, didn't have, I was raised by a single mom. I didn't have any siblings. You just wanted to belong anybody. to something. Yeah, I just wanted to be a part of something. You know, I wanted to have friends. I wanted to, you know, feel like, you know, I was a part of something. Totally. Yeah. Uh, my mom, you know, at that point, she was working two jobs and going to cosmetology school and trying to work on her music. You know, she was doing everything she could, just, you know, digging in the mud, trying to get us out, you know, and trying to prove that she could do it on her own and trying to make a way. And, you know, it's one thing that I can say about my mom is she, you know, she may have what some people would think gave up a lot of times, but she never, she was a fighter. She never gave up. She's, you know, even to this day, you know, she's still trying to make ends meet, you know, and. I do everything I can for her, of course, now. So she's not just, she definitely doesn't struggle at this point. Um, but she still, she still does struggle. You know, she's still, I've got a little brother that's 18 that uh, she's raising and taking care of. Um, we don't really see eye to eye on that. He hasn't left the house in five years. He's a, plays video games and is caught in this bubble, you know, and she's a, you know, he kind of runs her ragged and tells her what to do and aggravates the shit out of me. You know, I want to go there and beat his ass. And my mom is like, will not. Nice. He's like off limits. And I'm like, you're fucking enabling him. Yeah. He hasn't walked out the front door in five years, mom. He's going to be fucked up. He's going to be a fucking, you know. But, you know, she's got a million excuses for him like any mom would. And, you know, it's just it's, uh, kind of having to let her deal with that on her own, you know, um, not deal with it on her own. I'm here for hundred percent, but I'm having to let her make that decision. Cause if it was up to me, I go drag his ass out that fucking house and say, no, you're going to go to work. You're going to go to the fucking gym. You're going to, you know, finish high school. You know, he's online school gaming all day. And you know, who knows? He might be the next fucking, he might invent the biggest video game in the world and be a multimillionaire or, you know, but, you know, it drives me crazy yeah. to watch, especially when I talk to my mom and she's running to three different fast food joints to get him food. You know, well, he likes fries from here and he likes the Coke from here. Oh, wow. And he likes the meal from here. And I'm like, make his fucking ass get up and go get it. Like, you know, he's 18. He's never drove a car. Like, yeah. But, you know, I say all that definitely not to bash her because I love her and she's she's doing the best that she knows to do. Uh, we can always do better, you know, any of us in life, you know. So I don't want to use the term best she can do because we can all do better. But uh, it is frustrating, especially yeah. like, you know, I'm a, I'm a man's man. I like to be out outside. I like hard work. I like labor. You know, I, I'm working. 70, 80 hours a week, you know, um, 
well, let's go. So you walk back in the bowling alley. Yeah, so I walk back in the bowling alley. And uh, that was the beginning of me becoming a gang member. And Was it immediate acceptance? Oh, yeah. When you walked in there? Yeah, for sure, especially there because of who brought me in. Um, now, through those years, especially like as I'm going to different neighborhoods, moving to different places, meeting other members, uh, there was a lot of discrepancy on if white boys could be GD. You know, that's what I was a part of, Gangster Disciple. And What's it called? Gangster Disciple. Okay. GD. It's Larry Hoover, um, which, you know, they're fighting to get him out of prison now because he's got, you know, hundreds of years, been in Supermax, Kanye West, Drake, just teamed up with his son, Larry Hoover Jr., to get him out because, you know, his the thing about GD that made me gravitate towards it was it was originally Gangster Disciple, but then it evolved into growth and development. And as Larry Hoover, who was, you know, a street guy from Chicago, was, you know, how, you know, he started this gang and it, it progressed as he went to jail and he started seeing the way things were and started to grow up as a man himself it became less of a gang and more of an organization. And he changed, he, he evolved it from gangster disciple into growth and development and would write, you know, these pieces of literature and knowledge to try to inspire these, what once were violent gang members into being business owners, into being, you know, um, politicians or, or, you know, whatever, um, so a lot of the knowledge that came from it will live with me forever. You know, there was a lot of um, pieces of their literature that are inspiring. You know, there's laws and policies, there's codes. You know, you don't, a lot of these other gangs are free for all, killing each other and, and robbing and raping. Not allowed to rob, not allowed to rape, not allowed to, you know, there was like a lot of rules that, made you uphold a certain amount of integrity. Now, of course, everybody in the gang's not doing that. You know, it's still one of the most dangerous gangs in the world to this point, especially in the prison systems. How many members, roughly, do you you know? I don't don't know for sure. I I would definitely say anywhere from 750,000 to 1.5 million. I mean... Members? Yeah, for sure. Is this a global or... Uh, United States, national. Yeah, Yeah. definitely. Uh, Holy shit. That's a big fucking gang. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, would be one of the largest. It's probably, you know, it probably is the largest if you take away, you know, Bloods and Crips, um, which are just, you know, they're the, they're, uh, but uh, once again, there's so many sets of those that a lot of Crips don't get along with other Crips. You know, you got the five dudes Hoover don't like the rolling sixties or, you know, whatever. They're constantly beefing amongst those gangs to where GD was one organization that was, you know, governed and actually, you know, had literature and laws and policies. And so it was, it was definitely, um, there was for me always, 
having those seeds planted of righteousness. Yeah. It was, that was what I gravitated towards. You know, I had friends that were in all the gangs that I was seeing growing up, but that was always the one that, you know, sexy to me. That was the one that was like, I want to be that, you know? Uh, so, and, and, you know, and in the prison systems as well, they're the same. Like you see the way that the GDs move in prison is completely different than a lot of other gangs, you know, um, they're more uniformed, they're, you know, they're out there working out They're you know, they're, they're like trying to better themselves hmm. if they really follow the teachings of Larry Hoover or, you know, um, people in position that have written that literature about bettering yourself, you know? So definitely was a, a major part of my life yeah. for 20 years, you know, uh, 25 years. So, um, getting the gang, um, next move after the whole thing at, um, Mount Julian Christian Academy, we moved back to Franklin. Moved back to Franklin. Moved back to Franklin. This time we moved to the apartments right on the other side of Cherokee Projects, um, down by the ball field. Uh, lived in the back of the apartments. Once again, based on your income, um, a little trail goes up right into Cherokee Projects. I don't know if you know where that is. I don't. Um, but so, you know, my mom's back working two jobs, going to cosmetology school. I'm at home by myself all the time. Um, and you know how it is, especially starting high school. You're the kid whose parents are never home. So my house, my apartment became the hangout spot. Um, and it was, you know, the same thing. Like I was, I'd go to Wayland's on the weekends to spend time with Shooter. And at Wayland's house, you know, there's Cadillac, Jaguar, Mercedes, big house. I knew what was possible. Hearing the stories of Wayland coming from nothing, dirt floor in Texas, to becoming the icon that he was and, you know, the man that he that he was at the time, or will always be, but um, having him as a, a fatherly figure in my life, of course, I wanted what he had. Going back to my neighborhood on the weekdays, the only guys that had Mercedes, Cadillacs, Jaguars were the drug dealers. My mom was never at home. Um, she was working her ass off to barely make ends meet. I watched my mom break down uh, while I was in high school in tears because I asked her for lunch money and she didn't have it to give me, you know. Uh, which once again, you know, that was her wanting, you know, I, I see the nobility in it. I see her wanting to prove that she could do it on her own. Um, and I hope that she doesn't have a lot of regret from that because we could have, I could have had a completely different life. Yeah. You know, um, if she'd have listened to Waylon and listened to the family and, but you know, we got to all make our own path and she felt she was doing the right thing by breaking away from that. I try to teach my kids that now, like 
I'm not trying to keep you under a rule. I'm not trying to keep you contained. I want you to blossom. But I've been through shit. I've seen shit that I don't want you to ever have to see. That I don't ever want you to have to go through. It's the kind of same thing Waylon was doing to her. But she rebelled. Wanting to prove that she didn't need their money. She didn't need, you know. It's like, yeah, you don't need my money. You know, I want my kids to know that. You don't need my money. You can go out there and get it. Like, you can be ten times more successful than I could ever be. But you don't have to go through all this shit that I already went through. You know, uh, if you just listen to me, it'll the path will be a little easier. Yeah. I'm not going to say it's going to be easy at all by any means. It's not going to be easy. Everybody's path needs some roughness to it for you to even appreciate where you get. Um, but, you know, when I look back at it, I do see the nobility and I see that she was, you know, really trying, you know. When I was younger, I had a little bit of resentment because I thought it was just stubbornness. And I was like, oh, she was just bucking the system. And now look at me, look at the life I've had to live and things I've had to endure because I wouldn't change any of it. And now I applaud her for it, but also, you know, want to tell my kids like, hey, don't do that. Yeah. You know, like, uh, but so we moved back to Franklin, um, started Franklin High School, uh, still had the gang affiliation. So, you know, I would still make trips to go see the guys in Hermitage or they'd come down to Franklin automatically linked up with the guys that were a part of the same gang in Franklin, you know, um, run around wild Franklin for years. Um, at what point did you start running drugs for him? Well, so I never actually ran drugs for the gang per se. Okay. Yeah. Um, I actually dealt to most of them. Um, I guess I was probably, um, first time I ever started selling drugs was around 12. 12 years old? Yeah, in middle school. Um, getting small amounts of uh, weed, uh, cocaine, um, anything that I could sell to make a little bit of money. Uh, 14, when we were living here, is when I got my first large amount, I got my first pound of weed. Um, they were building Cool Springs Galleria. Uh, it wasn't even up yet. And I was living in some apartments called the Landings right behind it. And that was after Franklin High School. Um, went there for a year, got into a bunch of trouble, you know, running from the police, skipping school, um, fighting, uh, and so my mom had tried to move us more, once again, fresh start, move us out towards Cool Springs. I went to Brentwood High School, which was, once again, another culture shock. You know, just those different environments, uh, which really taught me that the environment doesn't change the person. Yeah. You know, and you can adapt to the environment if you're willing and the environment can definitely inspire you or you know, you can progress or fall backwards if you allow the environment to affect you like that. But 
the person's the person, you know, regardless where she put me, I was still the same person. I might change the way I dressed. I might change my accent a little bit, you know, but I was always the same person deep inside. Um, so we're with high school, get a pound of weed from a guy, uh, an older kid and broke it up. And I remember the day they opened Cool Springs, I was in there with a backpack full of dime bags. No shit. All my friends were like walking around trying to holler at the girls and I'm trying to sell dime bags of weed. You know, I've got this backpack full of, you know, a pound of weed. Um, and that was uh, 94, 95, so I was 14, 15. So what was the conversation like with the whoever gave you the pound of weed? I mean, they were just like, hey, here's a pound of weed. No, it was it was me looking for it. You were you looking know? for it. Yeah, I was always looking for it. I had, I had kind of decided, um, you know, so I spent the weekends throughout my childhood a lot of times either going to shooters uh, in Waylands or going out and seeing my dad's side of the family in West Nashville. So when I would go out there with my Uncle Tadpole to West Nashville as a child, that's when I was around a lot of that. And I'd see the guys that were like, you know, uh, hustling and, and selling weed and selling cocaine. And so I was, I had pretty much made a decision by the time I was 12 that I want to be a drug dealer. Okay. You know, they were, uh, we were just talking about the other day, uh, in the gym with my friend Bobby. I was like, man, I still want to go get those Jordans from 92. The red and black ones. I know what you're talking about. They had the cross over it. And they had the blue and purple ones, and then they had the red and black ones, and the the things cross across the front of them, because I couldn't afford them back then. My mom couldn't afford to get them to me, get them for me. And I remember a guy named Randy Riser. He had them with the matching Bulls jersey. You know, and I can remember it like yesterday. I wanted those shoes, both pair, the 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 Charlotte colored ones and the Chicago Bulls colored ones. So we were just talking about that the other day, but it was around that era, you know, moving to Nashville and seeing, you know, guys that I would hear were selling drugs and, you know, they, they had the shoes I wanted or they had the pretty girlfriend or they had a car, you know, before they were even old enough to drive. And, uh, so I had realized at a young age that I wanted to do that. Um, so not, it was the money. It was the money. It was, I was tired of seeing my mama struggle. I wanted to make something. I was hearing my mother say that. I can do it without you. I can do it on my own. I can do it on my own. I can do it on my own. I could hear my dad's voice. Son, you know, sometimes you might have to do wrong for what's right. You know, you take care of your family by any means necessary. You know, it's okay to do wrong if it's for the right reasons. You know, those those uh, irrational beliefs that were instilled in especially poverty areas, you know, and the families, and it's that way of thinking, you know, that's like, well, by any means necessary, whatever you got to do to feed your family, you know, try not to hurt nobody, but whatever you got to do, family over everything, Yeah, you know. Um, and that, that was a big part of prison, stripping those irrational beliefs, tearing down all those 
You know, those things that I had been ingrained with and taught for years as being law and truth, you know, and realizing like, no, (laughs) that's completely fucking irrational. Yeah. Like, yeah, protect your family by any cost. But when I went to prison, the same people that I had justified all my actions and said, I'm doing this for my family. I'm doing this to feed my kids. I'm doing this to give my kids a better life. They're the ones that ended up in the fucking projects in drug houses being molested and drugged through the mud while I'm in prison and can't protect them. Yeah. You know what I mean? So they became the victims when I justified all my fuck shit and all my poor decisions by I was being a man and taking care of my family when in actuality almost ruined my family. You know, they went through so much because of the decisions I made. So that was a major, major part of my transformation. Oh God. And me saying, here I am in prison, a guy that thinks I've got everything figured out and I've got all this control. I've got this power in the street. I've got this power through money. I've got this, this say so, uh, you know, I have no control. I'm behind bars. Anything can happen to them. They're going through this and I can't do anything. Yeah, I can maybe send a friend over there to try to protect them if something happened or I can send a friend over there with a couple dollars to cover rent. But that's not, you know, the mother of my children was falling victim to addiction. So she's dragging them through the mud. She died two years ago from a drug overdose. My youngest three's mom. So watching that happen and saying, I don't have any control. Yeah. At this point, the only control I have is of me and of what I do at this time and the control, uh, the, the opportunity to sit here and figure out what I want out of life, who I want to be, who I am, who am I, who do I not want to be and who do I want to be, yeah. you know, and stripping all of that out, getting rid of all of it. Uh, let's, uh, Let's stay on. Yeah, yeah. Cause let's I can stay on gangs <laughs> first. We'll get to prison. Yeah, and then uh, into the, and then into music. But so you're you're fourteen, thirteen or fourteen. 14, 15. You got pound selling, of weed, selling drugs, selling yeah. drugs at the Galleria. Yeah. And what did that develop into? Um, developed into just the same cycle for years. Um, hanging out with a bunch of friends. You know, running around wild, breaking into cars. It comes to the point where uh, my mother, I had ran away for a little while. She had called the police, of course. The police officer that showed up to the house, she kind of had a relate, started a relationship with him. Um, so fast forward few months later, uh, I call her and I'm like, hey, you know, I think I want to go back to Brentwood, you know. Um, at this time, I'm at the new school they had just built, Centennial. I'm like, I think I want to go back to Brentwood. Um, you know, can we see if we can get rezoned there, see if we can get me back in there. I'm just, I'm in the wrong crowd. I'm just this point, I'm like driving a stolen car to and from school. Uh, 
breaking into cars at night. I'm selling weed during the day, you know, and she goes in my room for whatever reason, finds some stuff that she thinks looks sketchy, calls her cop friend, says, hey, if there's stuff in the house, you know, will I be charged with it if, you know, and he's like, oh, yeah, sure. And I, you know, whatever. He comes over there, searches the room, um, firearm, stole a bag full of stolen radios, bags, weed residue, scales, you know. Uh, and so they come pick me up from school. Um, tried to run, didn't work. Um, took me to juvenile. Sitting in juvenile, uh, you know, my mom, when I get in there, they're interrogating me. They're asking me about the gang, asking me about my trips to Nashville to get drugs. Because uh, by this point, you know, I'm giving my mom money. And I'm, she's my mom. You know, she was the only thing I ever had for a long time. So I had confided in her about some of my criminal activity and about what I was doing. And uh, so she had told them of course, everything I had told her. And so I get in there and they're interrogating me and I just, you know, I just completely shut down, didn't tell them anything. Uh, going to court, they're seeking to send me off to DYD, which is Department of Youth Development. Could have been there as far as up to 21, you know, but probably 18 is probably where, it probably would have been about three years incarcerated. So this is a 15. Yeah, this is a 15. You're in juvie. Mm-hmm. And I had already been to juvie a couple times before uh, for a Grand Theft Auto. Shit. Uh, my, my mom's door got kicked in for that. Um, she had been with, uh, she was in another abusive relationship. Me and the guy actually pulled guns on each other at 15, right before all that other stuff happened. And, uh, but he, he was the same way. He was putting his hands on her and stuff, which we got him back the good way. We He had a BMW. He thought he was all cool, you know. He came out one day. The thing was completely destroyed. No windows, no tires, no wheels, <laughs> gas tank uh, full of sugar, you know. Just We completely, uh, he put his hands on my mom one too many times. Um, but... Uh, so I'm sending juvenile, they're looking to send me a DYD and it was like out of a movie. I'm like in the courtroom and like a door swings open and you hear these fucking cowboy boots clicking across the floor and it was Waylon and he came in there and talked to the judge behind the chambers and pretty much just told him like, Hey, this kid just needs a father figure. His uncle Tadpole, who was my dad's brother has stepped up, said he wants to take custody of him, you know, give his kid another chance. So moved from Franklin to West Nashville to where my dad's side of the family was. My Uncle Tadpole was a hustler, um, drug dealer, hardworking motherfucker though. Construction, cars, hydraulic work, I mean, every bit of it. He can do it, he's great at it, and he's always been a super hard worker. But of course, you know, if he can make a couple extra dollars, selling a couple pounds of weed, he would, you know, um, like to grow his own weed. And uh, 
I didn't know any of that at this point. <laughs> you know, like I moved in, like, oh man, I'm going to I'm send me to prison. Like he's fixing to kick my ass. Cause he's just old West Nashville, tough motherfucker. And so I get with him, uh, I get taken out of my mom's custody, um, and get put into custody with my uncle Tadpole. He uh automatically straight out the gate puts me to work. I got chores, you know, uh, taught me how to rebuild a motor, um, teaching me construction, you know, doing construction on the weekends, whatever job he may be on at the time. And um, lived with him for about two years. But so I moved out to West Nashville with him. And of course, new environment. Same thing. I know a lot of the kids already because I had been out there on the weekends and, you know, went to the skating rink and, you know, um, changed high schools. Went to high school out there, immediately found the guys that smoked weed, started smoking weed. Um, One of the neighbors uh, that I had known from the skating rink happened to be a weed dealer. Jumped right back into it. Fell right back into right it. Right back into it. Um, but Tadpole was a different animal. You couldn't get over on him. Like, you know, anything that you're doing, he's going he's gonna to know. So where with my mom, I could walk to the store, smoke a couple joints, and come back high. She wouldn't know I was high. You know, uh, Tadpole was like, boy, where the hell did you get that? <laughs> you know, like, what was going on? And so... Once I had kind of proved myself to him, you know, then he started to like, okay, well, it's in you. You're not going to just change overnight. Let me just teach you how to be smart, how to do good business, how to work hard. And he he taught me how to be a man, you know. Uh, He taught me how to work with my hands, not be afraid of, you know, hard work and putting the work in myself. Uh taught me how to grow weed, taught me how to sell weed, taught me how to not get caught by the police, you know, taught me how to, you know, uh, budget money, feed my family. Taught you a lot of shit. Taught me a lot of shit, you know. Um, Just found out a few days ago he's got stage four cancer. They just cut part of his lung out. He's been hiding it from me. Damn. He's just a tough son of a bitch, but... Sorry to hear that. Yeah, he's going. I think he'll, I think he's got a, a lot of fight left in him. He'll be around for a while. I don't see this being the end of anything yet. Uh, but you know, if it is, he lived a fucking hell of a life. Yeah, and he definitely uh, his legacy will live on through me and my kids because I still, you know, I still teach my kids a lot of the same principles that he's, you know, instilled in me. But so. Move into West Nashville, falling right back into the same thing. Um, when did when did it go from weed to opiates to cocaine? Yeah, or- so it was it, it was we it was weed and cocaine out of the gate, and then ended up just being weed for a long time. When I was seventeen, I got addicted to cocaine. Okay. Um, I was selling cocaine, started playing with it a little bit, 
um, well, I guess 16-ish. Yeah, 16, because it was uh, my my prom. I had been up for four days. And my, my, <laughs> I've got some friends that still pop up my prom pictures every once in a while. I'd be like, fuck, yeah, my eyes are this big. I'm like, bleach blonde hair and shit before Eminem. Uh, bleach blonde hair, eyes big as hell. Um, but, um, yeah, so I guess about 16, you know, late 16, early 17. How much cocaine were you pushing? At, at, when it first started, just a couple ounces at a time, you know, which is still, you know, a few thousand dollars. So, um, 16 years old, you know, you got 10 grand put up, you're rich. You yeah. Know? So, um, started off and I was doing, I was probably consuming a half ounce a day, you know, just between partying with everybody and, you know, um, but I was selling enough to where I was still making good money and, uh, but dealing with cocaine, you burn a lot of bridges, especially when you're using. So I was burning bridges left and right and then got to a point where I was a quote unquote cowboy, you know, I was robbing just as much as I was selling. Damn. Um, kicking it, you know, finding big licks and, you know, kicking doors in and, wilding out like literally being a fucking young terrorist you know just terrorizing um in any form that i could uh right about 18 19 found out that i was having my first daughter um i had just been a low level low level drug dealer i guess it was 18 when i found out low-level drug dealer, you know, selling enough to keep my habit and still make money and, you know, wear gold jewelry and drive a decent car and, you know, party and um, be known for being a drug dealer, but definitely nothing substantial. And I uh, found out that, you know, through, you know, just when you're living that life, you may be rich one day, you know, and then next day, lose it all, you know. So right before I found out, or the day I found out, earlier that day, my hotel room was up, didn't have any cocaine, didn't know what I was going to do, where I was going to go. Pulled a nine millimeter that I had had out, put it to my head, crying tears ready to just end it all. Still living with that regret, you know, for my father, thinking that he had committed suicide. And uh, the girl that I was with had left me, you know. And right as I pull it back, they just, they're beating on the door. And I just, I, all I remember is thinking, I don't know where to go. Can't go to my mom's. At this point, I'm kicked out. Me and Tadpole have already fell out. We're not seeing eye to eye right now. Um, you know, really no friends that I trust. You know, nobody that I can really call on to go 
crash on their couch. Or, you know. So the gang wasn't really working out at this point. No, it's they're all in the same position I'm in. Yeah, they're on the same situations. They're all doing the same thing that I'm doing. Um, and so I remember vividly being like, "This isn't where I want to die." I'm in the Congress Inn on Dickerson Road, like shitty hotel, <laughs> you know. Um, this can't be it. I get up and I leave. Uh, I went walked to my mom's house, which was straight up the street about three, four miles. I go over there, um, get a couple of my things, pack a little bag. I'm not allowed to stay there. She's got a, at this point, she's got a fiance that's doing really good for himself. You know, he's not abusive. He's, uh, he was an awesome guy. She was with him for a couple of years and they had gave us, they had gave me a chance to live there before. And, um, I got into a shootout with a guy and blew this half of my finger off. Um, what was the shootout over? Drugs. Same shit as always. Um, but my mom had came home and I was laying on her couch, passed out, covered in blood and shit. Um, and so there was just a lot of times when they were those moments where she was just like, I've had enough. I can't do this. You know, she never gave up on me, though. Again, like this while as soon as I got a record label, I recorded an album with her because, you know, trying to give her that back and be able to give her some of that because she gave up her career, a lot of it. You know, we talked about her nobility and stubbornness and stuff, but yeah. a lot of it was chasing my badass around, you know, and trying to figure. We were figuring life out together. She was 16. She was just a baby, you know, and we kind of raised each other. But uh, so I was kicked out of my mom's. Um, my best friend, uh, Crazy Jay, who he's doing 82 years, he had just got picked up. Uh, when I got kicked out of my mom's, he was staying with me. So he went out to South Nashville to stay with another friend of ours. Um, and somebody had robbed them. He chased the guy down. The guy shot at him. He shot back, killed the guy, freaked out because he was 17. Freaked out. There was a, you know, a junkie, a drug addict running around the neighborhood. He paid the guy $20 to get rid of the body because he didn't know what to do. He was 17, he flipped oh, out. The guy drags the body around the back of the store, throws a mattress over it, sets it on fire. Takes the gun, takes everything out the guy's pockets. So when the police come, it looks like a robbery and somebody tampering with the body, you know? There was no uh, proof of a shootout, no proof the guy shot at my cousin first, or my best friend first. You know, so he's been sitting in prison. Hopefully, it looks like this year he might get some love and maybe get, because um, he's been in 25 years, you know, since he was 17. He's 42 now. Uh, and it was self-defense, you know. There's no proof of that. There's no way to prove that. But uh, I know that Governor Bill Lee's trying to do some reform with some of those old murders um, guys that, you know, got life sentences 
17 to 21 and have done over 20 years of their sentence, giving them parole options. Hmm. They don't have that. So uh, hopefully he's going to get some love. But so he had just went, you know, I didn't really have anybody else at the time. Um, took a uh, bus back to West Nashville because at this time I was living in East Nashville where my mom had been and um, where the girl that I had met and was dating had been. But me and her were like broke up, whatever. Moved back to West Nashville and uh, she comes out there and tells me that day she was, cause I called her from a payphone, like, hey, just letting you know I'm in West Nashville now. And she's like, I got something I got to tell you where you're at. I gave her the address. She pulled up over there and told me I'm pregnant. Uh, it's yours. I'm like, well, we ain't been together in six months. Like, hey, you know it's mine. She was like, trust me, it's yours. Like, it's six months. I wasn't fucking with nobody else when we were fucking around. So then I was like, okay, well, this is the time when I need to change my life. You know, quit doing cocaine quit robbing and settled down to become a weed dealer, right? It's kind of what you did, what you kind of did in my neighborhood. Like you settled down to do good business, you know, instead of, uh, instead of living on the edge. Yeah. So, uh, of course I had a lot of bridges I had to mend and I had a reputation I had to rebuild because, you know, nobody's going to meet me in a dark alley to buy weed from me. You know? Yeah. They think I'm going to rob them or something. So uh linked up with some people, started selling weed again, uh, rebuilt that. And a lot of those relationships in the streets, um, bought our first house, and then it just snowballed. Met a friend from high school that I hadn't seen in a long time. Uh, come to find out he was the man. You know, he had since high school had, you know, moved up the ranks and was had the weed, had a lot of weed. So, you know, went from getting one or two pounds to getting 100 pounds. When you're building a weed network or a weed business or any drug business, how how did you start? I mean, because it's not like you're getting referrals and shit, right? Yeah, a lot of you, times. You, you got to you know, hit you're, it. You're meeting people. You know, you're hanging out at parties, just yeah, handing it out. or You're just living life. And yeah. everybody smokes weed back then, you know. I guess everybody really smokes weed now. It's legal half the places, but uh and then you just get a reputation for having good weed, doing good business, you know. Um I always tried to be uh super competitive with prices. Um and I always just had good energy. People wanted to buy from me, people wanted to be friends. They wanted to be a part of whatever I was doing. Okay. Um, there's one thing that I always had was that light in me. You know, I had that light, like, I'm going to do something great. I don't know what the fuck it is, but I'm going to do something. Um, so I was, you know, especially in those older years, I was super popular, you know, as far as well-known, I guess is what, the, what it would be. Um, Uh, yeah, it is that you build a network, you know, you just a lot of times like, oh, yeah, you know, the person that I'm selling weed to goes and tells the person they used to buy weed from. Uh, and then eventually you just get clientele. Uh, Was it territorial at all back then? 
Did you ever I worry mean, about where you're selling? Uh, I never really dealt with that that much because, um, you know, I was a gang member. Okay. And, uh, even at my height when I was selling, you know, kilos of cocaine and hundreds of pounds of weed, I would sell to the other major gang members, you know, like the guys that were um, the big homies. Okay. Uh, so, yeah, I didn't have too much. I, I never really had a lot of problems with uh, people trying to rob me because I already had the reputation of having a gun and using a gun and being willing to go to any lengths to, you know, protect mine. How many shootouts do you think you've been in? Uh, more than I could count. How would they transpire? You only uh, shot twice? I only shot twice, yeah. Um, what, was, what was the question you asked? How would they kind of transpire? Uh, you know what? Most of the times that I've been in shootouts has been me coming to the aid of somebody else. Uh, two people getting into an argument, somebody robbing somebody that I knew um, or trying to rob somebody that I knew and me going to try to save somebody. So a lot of this wasn't actually from dealing. Um, it comes with it. It was from Because protection. it'd be like, you know, uh, you got a guy on the other side of town that tries to rob one of your good friends of some of your stuff. Okay, they're robbing drugs. Yeah, robbing drugs. Or um, I've got two assault charges on my record. Uh, both of them are from seeing a guy beating up a girl, intervening, getting the guy off the girl. Both times the girl caught the cops on me that I just saved her fucking ass. You know what I mean? Like all of the, a lot of the trouble, a lot of the violence that I've been in has always been coming to the aid of somebody else. Cause like I said, nobody really brought it to my door. I had a reputation of, I will come down through there and light this bitch up. Okay. You know? Um, so a lot of things, and I've always been one of those guys. My dad told me when I was a kid, told me that my name William meant defender of the week. So I always had that in the back of my head. So anytime, you know, somebody was getting bullied or, you know, through high school or anything, I never condoned that. Like I would be the first one to jump in front of five people and try to fight all five of them for picking on somebody, you know, um, because my dad had just instilled that in me and gave me that. So I, I held on to that as well as, you know, protecting the women that I love and the women in my life and all women. I held on to those as like badges of honor because it was, you know, the last thing that I remember my dad really talking to me about. Um, so yeah, I've been in uh, a lot of shootouts. Um, you got shot twice. Been shot twice. Same. Been shot in the shin and then in the back of the leg. Same uh, gunfight? No, two totally different ones. Let's let's go into those. Yeah. Where, where'd you get hit first? Uh, the first time was in the back of the leg. Uh, and it, once again, a friend of mine, we're at the movie theaters. He had heard his girl was cheating on him, pulls up to the movie, runs in, runs in can't find her, 
We go out back to smoke a cigarette. She's out back with the guy. We run over there. All his friends are there. My friend's frantic. His girlfriend's messing around on him. And quick scuffle, gun, running. I'm shooting back. They're shooting at us. Didn't even realize I was hit. Felt the pressure. Kind of knocked me down. Thought I had tripped. Uh, a few minutes later, felt the burning, thumping pain of, of it, you know, hit me, hit me in the back of the leg and my, um, my hamstring. Second time, uh, Wendell Smith's parking lot, West Nashville on the corner of Mar Road in Charlotte. Um, I had been in another shootout where I had actually hit somebody. Um, Where'd you hit him? Uh, shoulder, leg, twice, leg. Um, and it was a retaliation. Guy saw me, was like, oh, let's struggle. Um, quick altercation, car to car. He draws, I duck. I'm shooting over the car. He's shooting. Uh, bullet comes underneath the car. Catches just the right way. Bounces off the concrete. Hits me right here in the shin. Under the bone? Yeah. Shit. Uh, shattered that thing. Um, what happened to the guy you hit? Uh, he you lived. Know. He, yeah, did. he lived. Um, had a... Friend had called me, said, hey, man, I got a guy that's got something. Um, these guys want to buy 10 pounds. I really need to do this deal. I need to make some money. My girl's pregnant. I'm like, all right, cool, you know, whatever. Go to do the deal with him. It was a setup. We get in the car. My buddy goes, does the transaction, comes back. Money's counterfeit. I know it's counterfeit as soon as he puts it in my hand. So the, one of the guys that's in the front seat is one of their friends. So of course I put a gun to him, like tell the other guy, catch up to him, pull up side by side. I'm like, hey man, I'm yelling through the window. Hey, money's no good. Like, let's just, let's make this easy. Make this, you know, exchange. They act like they're gonna pull the weed. I put the weed out the window, pull the bag back. Nine millimeter Beretta comes out the window. I'm wearing a two door Saturn. I'm in the back seat. Shit. They fired every one of those into that back window. Yeah, that's a little ass window. Yeah, every one of them. And I just remember just sitting there and I'm like fucking praying in my head. You know what I mean? Like, there's nothing I can do right now. You know, I mean, it's just. Fire after fire after fire after fire after fire, and I'm froze. Soon as I hear it stop, they're pulling off. I raise up and start shooting. Boom, 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 boom. I've got a 44 um, short dog like uh, revolver. Got two speed reloaders locked in my pocket. Lighting, lighting the car up. We're driving like this. We're on Briley Parkway. Finally, the car goes to the side, veers off. We're driving too fast. We pull up. I see one of the guys take off running. 
we go up, come back down the exit, come back up. And uh, one of the guys is hit. The other guys are gone out of the car. The guy who was with me, they had thrown a bag out before they went off. We stopped and said, go get that and wait right here for us. You know, of course he did and he ran off too, which we found them all. And, you know, I got all my stuff back. But uh, when we looked at that car the next morning, it looked like, and I had, you know, my face was like uh, strawberry, you know, like powder burnt and stuff. Like I had marks on me and stuff. Wasn't hit a single time. Damn. Every one of those bullet holes was through the seat no where shit. I was sitting. Like literally like they went through me. Every single one of them. Wow. Uh, another one of those moments that brought me closer to God. Like, yeah. Okay. There's definitely somebody, somebody's got my back right yeah, now. The shit doesn't just like, happen like this. Yeah. This that's not. It's, you know, I have some kind of purpose. Uh, had a few instances like that. It's the reason I quit smoking weed when I was 21. Uh, a friend of mine called me, said, "I got these stories for days, dog." But a friend calls me. He's like, hey, man, you know, I got somebody that wants to buy some weed. And I'm like, all right, cool. Come to the house. He comes to the house. We ride over. I pick it up from where I kept everything. And me and my baby mama at the time had uh, been arguing. So I had a bag full of clothes where I went and stayed at a hotel because me and her were arguing. Got a bag full of clothes in the back. Run in, grab the 10 pounds he wants, put it in the car, drive him to the park, and... I've been, you know, I'm sitting here smoking back-to-back, uh, -back, you know, blunts. And I'm sitting in the car, we're in the park, waiting on him, you know, his person to come pick it up or whatever. Well, all of a sudden, I hear a scuffle, and they start shooting. Boom, boom, boom. And so I put the car in drive and duck down and mash the gas as he's jumping in the front of the car. Blew the headrest off of my seat. They had run up from my side, but because I was smoking, I wasn't paying any attention. And I quit smoking weed that day because I was like, you know what? I, I can't live this life and be out of my element. Man, how, like, you know, a lot of people get, a, coming from a military background and being in war for 14 years, you get addicted to this shit. Oh, yeah. I mean, that adrenaline, there's, 100%. there's no drug in the world that can give you a high like fucking getting shot at being yeah. in the middle of a gunfight. No, for sure. You know, especially if you're allowed to do it. Deep. <laughs> Shit. Well, I think it might be, be a, more adrenaline like, if you're not allowed to do it. Yeah. No, there's a, Cause there's then you got extra. two things to worry about. But, um, but no, do you got, think you got addicted to that lifestyle oh, and addicted to that adrenaline at all? A hundred percent. And I still, I still crave it. Yeah. You know, uh, I've been out of prison six years now. I did five years in prison, so I'm 11 years removed from that life. 11, 11 years, because I was all the way up until the day I got locked up. But 11 years removed from that life, and uh, I still crave it. Yeah, you know, I've got. I have friends that don't do anything illegal, but they'll keep something illegal around them just because they crave having something to hide. Yeah, having something to feel like they're still in that element. You know. Um, that's interesting. Yeah, I, I definitely, of course, crave it. I find a lot of relief in the gym. 
um, touring on stage, you know, um, I get to release a lot of it, writing songs about it, you know, um, but I still, I, I crave, I crave the chaos. Yeah. You know, um, and my, my life's chaotic enough to where I get enough of it. And I've still got so much, even though I'm removed, you know, uh, I still get cause of, you know, um, so many family members dying from overdoses, gang violence, DUIs, suicides, like nonstop. Um, that's why I did the song, did the cover for Have You Ever Seen the Rain? Because it's like, even though this is my best life yet, and it seems like our brightest hour, it is still thunderstorming on us. And I still have a lot of that chaos. I'm removed enough from it, you know, to where how I deal with it is my choice now. You yeah. Know? Um, you can manage it. I can manage it. I don't put, I'm not in a, I don't put myself in situations to where it's fight or flight and I have to deal with it right there, you know, but, and I've got a couple of friends that I still call to get a little bit of the tea, get a little gossip, you know, to see what's going on in the neighborhood just to kind of keep a pulse on things. Yeah. yeah kind of feel, get a few minutes. Like what happened? You know, <laughs> but, um, yeah, no, it's definitely, uh, definitely addicting. More than the money. Yeah. You know, being the man or having that power and that constant strategic, well, I got to move like this because they're moving like this. And, you know, playing that game is so addicting. The tactics of it all. Yes. And, and especially, the craft. Yes. And especially when you get like, up to higher levels, you know, like one of the most fulfilling things is when I sit down, when I used to sit down with a guy and be like, you know, he had reached out to a friend, wanted to get drugs from me, you know, wanted to get some weight. And he reached out to a friend. And so I sit down with him, you know, I'm like, okay, well, cool. Like I'll sit down, we'll talk, meet at a restaurant on, you know, Thursday or something. And I sit down with him and I'm like, uh, all right, cool. So, you know, what are you looking for? He tells me what do you, how much he wants. I'm like, all right, cool. Do you want to dropped off at your mom's house, your baby mom's house, your sister's house? And he's like, how do you know where all those people live? And be like, I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you if I didn't know where all those people lived. You know, that's there's a there's like a power and like a, a adrenaline and even feel, you know being that that strategic and, and being that guy, you know. You let them know, you know. Yeah. You fuck me over. Yeah. I know like, where everybody lives. Yeah, I'm, I'm here. Like, so, of course, there's like, and, you know, as much as we can sit here and talk about it and get kind of riled up, there's no glory in it. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, it's it tears the threads of this beautiful country apart. Yeah. I'm watching so many loved ones, fucking great people, mothers, fathers, brothers, sisters die from drugs, especially with this, you know, fentanyl and the opiates now. In the last four years, I watched my three youngest kids and my two stepchildren's entire family disappear. Damn. So me and my wife, we've been best friends for, like I said, 20 years. 
we were in two, we were in different relationships. I was with my ex-wife who I had three kids with and she, my wife now was our best friend. And, uh, she lived with us, you know, my, the mother of my kids had a drug problem off and on most of our relationship. And so, you know, she'd be in and out, um, not physically, but, you know, uh, mentally and mm-hmm. you know, drug wise. And so my wife now, Taboo, she helped me raise my 16 year old daughter, uh, Issy. Like she was there from birth because the mother of my child was, you know, of course she dealt with postpartum and used that as an excuse to stay fucked up for months. And, um, but she was one of our best friends. And then when my ex-wife's brother got out of prison, they hooked up. So my wife then, and my wife now, so my, my wife that I, my ex-wife that I had three kids with, her brother and my wife now had two kids. So your sister-in-law, not by. Yeah, but not by, they, they actually never got married. Okay. But so, so you got me and my wife now, I was with uh, a girl and my wife now was with the girl I was with's brother. Okay. Um, so our kids are first cousins. Gotcha. Um, but then when I, by the time I came home from prison, my wife had went all the way out. My ex-wife had went all the way out bad um, to the point of, you know, back page and you know she was out there out there on oh, drugs man. and i tried to save her we sent her to multiple rehabs you know every time she'd be in and out of them we'd buy her new clothes and try to you know give her a support system but she had left the kids my kids were in foster care when i came home from prison um damn but in the last i've watched my ex-wife die from an overdose her dad died from an overdose. My stepkids, my ex-wife's brother, my wife now's baby daddy, just died in February from a drug overdose. Their other brother, Zach, just died from a drug overdose. Their grandmother died from an overdose, and their mom just died from an overdose. Holy shit. So, oh. my, so my kids, grandpa, grandma, great-grandma, my kid's mother, Uncles, uncle, and then my stepkids, father, aunt, grandmother, like our five of our kids just lost six of their family members in two, three, four years from drug overdoses, you know, and that's one of the beautiful parts about me and my wife's relationship is we're the two that made it out of that fire. Yeah. You know, when I came home from prison, I was like, I want to be with you. I want to spend my life with you. You're my best friend. And she was like, fuck you. She was like, I'm not, I'm not having it, you know. But uh, as she says, I was persistent, you know. Um, I knew what it could be. We had been through hell together, you know. So I knew, and I knew I had a rough road. I knew that, you know, fighting to get custody of my kids back, staying clean, breaking the, breaking the um, statistics, you know, not going back to my old ways really focusing on music and focusing on whatever I was going to do to pay the bills. Uh, I know it was going to be a tough road while dealing with probation and parole, 
you know, but I was determined and I had went through so much in those five years in prison, mentally, emotionally, physically, spiritually, that I knew I was ready and I knew I was going to make the best out of the rest of my life and that I was not going to go back. I was not going to fall victim to those, you know, to the streets and to my own way of thinking, Yeah, you know, my old own way of thinking. And, well, let's, right. uh, let's take a quick break. Yeah. Then when we come back, I want to talk about the big bus in Nashville airport prison, how you got started in music. Sounds good. A lot of you have heard me talk about my psychedelic journey this year and all the benefits that came from doing it. One being I haven't drank in seven months. I haven't had any caffeine in seven months. My anxiety's gone, my anger's gone. A whole list of benefits came from that. And that led me down this journey of researching benefits of mushrooms and fungi in general. And in my research, I found this company called Mudwater. Mudwater is a coffee alternative with four adaptogenic mushrooms and herbs. With a fraction of the caffeine as a cup of coffee, you get energy without anxiety, jitters, or the crash of coffee. What I really like about Mudwater is that they took the time to find the perfect ingredients to make a product that's gonna make you feel better every day. I genuinely believe that this is a good product. Mudwater is Whole30 approved, 100% USDA organic, non-GMO, gluten-free, vegan, and kosher certified. Mudwater also donates monthly to the Berkeley Center for the Science of Psychedelics, as Mudwater believes the country is in a mental health epidemic, and so do I. Go to mudwater.com Sean to support the show and use code Sean for 15% off. That's mudwater.com Sean. Use code Sean for 15% off. Serious question. Who wants to take the best shit of their entire life? Right here, I do. How do you do that? You go with Bub's Naturals Collagen Protein. You rip the thing open, you put it in your coffee, you stir it up, and you're on your way. Now, if taking the best shit of your entire life doesn't interest you, Collagen will also give you beautiful hair, great skin, and nails to die for. So, and you'll recover a lot quicker in between workouts if that's your thing. So now that we got the good shit out of the way, get it? <laughs> Let me tell you a little bit about Bubs the company. Bubs is a tribute company to Glenn Bubs Doherty, who was a Navy SEAL and a CIA contractor who died defending American freedom in Benghazi, Libya. Bubs donates 10% of all proceeds to veteran organizations like the Glenn Doherty Foundation and 100% of all proceeds on Veterans Day. Let me tell you about Bubs' latest product that helps with energy, healthy digestion, your immune system, and your metabolism. Bub's Naturals Apple Cider Vinegar Gummies, which actually taste so damn good that I ate all 60 of them the first, <laughs> the first night I got them. They taste amazing, and man, I got a lot of energy now. Anyways, go to bubsnaturals.com, use promo code SEAN, 
to take 20% off your order. Thank you, Bubs Naturals, for being a sponsor of The Sean Ryan Show. All right, Struggle, so we're back from the break. We're getting into the biggest cocaine bust in Nashville history, which was... Maybe still to this day. All of you. <laughs> yeah, all my guys, man. So um, let's let's walk through that deal. What? Well, I'll, I'll kind of start from the beginning because the story is uh, even going farther. Uh, I haven't actually ever said this on a on an interview. Just um, six months ago, I guess it's been six months, babe, baby, baby. About six months ago, they call me and they tell me that my dad's sister, baby, baby, my aunt, uh, is passing. She's only got a couple days to live. And this woman was like, she's my, you know, my aunt. She's been, you know, such a great, great force in my life. Like, she's always there when I needed her, you know, whether it was financial problems, legal problems. She always showed up. Baby, baby was a warrior. She had uh, two sons that are my two cousins that are still on death row right now um, for killing their dad uh, who was abusive you know but she's uh, she was just you know she's been through hell and back baby baby's you know she's been at the bottom of the barrel grinded her way up hustled her whole life scratch clawed you know been in terrible relationships you know um, and she's just, she was a survivor. So they call me and they tell me, baby, baby's passing. She's only got a couple days. She might not make it through the night. So I go over there and I see her and her spirit is just one that I hope that I have in my final days. You know, her son was like, mama, this is the most I've seen, seen you eat in days. And she goes, it's the last supper, motherfucker. <laughs> you know? <laughs> So it's just that uh, that spirit, you know, and I'm like, baby, baby, what are you doing? She's like, hey, hell, I'm just waiting to see what's on the other side of this door, baby, baby. You know, <laughs> so uh, that's why we called her baby, baby, because she was like, oh, yeah, baby, baby. Like, that's how she talks. So, um, but so we're sitting there and I've got my arm around baby, baby. And like I said, this woman's been a very 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 powerful force in my life like a rock i mean never gave up on me you know um i would want my daughters to strive to be as strong as this woman she's been through hell and back and uh never gave up never lost hope you know always just been a fighter uh and never took shit from anybody. Yeah. You know, literally pulled up to her house before and she's sitting out by her pool and there's bullet holes all in the window. I'm like, baby, what in the hell happened? She was like, oh, that motherfucker, talking about her husband, Cluck. That motherfucker, he got to talking shit. I tried to get his ass up out of here. You know, she's just, <laughs> she's a fighter, bro. But so I got my arm around baby, baby, and I'm hugging her and I, I know it's going to be the last time I ever see her. And my other aunt says, hey, your uncle's on the phone. He wants to talk to you. And this is uh, uncle of mine, uh, my uncle Paul. He was military, came back super fucked up. 
um, drinking heavy, got into a bar fight, stabbed a guy in the eye with his thumb, um, you know, went to prison, in and out of jails, drinking heavy, then gave his life to God and quit drinking, built a huge uh, rock company, like Riverbed Rock and stuff, Delivering Rock. Built a huge company, he's done great for himself. Uh, but I haven't talked to him and, you know, I was in prison for five years. I've been home for six. Don't think I've talked to him since I've been home. You know, been a while. And uh, so he gets on the phone. I'm sitting here on the phone, speakerphone, and he starts crying. I'm like, what's going on, Paul? And he's just mumbling. I can't understand what he's saying because he's so, like, frantic. And I'm looking around the room, and I'm feeling the energy change, right? And I look at, I look around, I'm like, what is he saying? And my cousin goes, something he shouldn't be fucking talking about. So I kind of, I kind of, at that moment, I'm like, okay. I'm like, Paul, what are you saying? And he was like, I'm so sorry to tell you this, but baby, baby's the one that killed your dad. And I've got my arm around her, you know? And it was one of those moments where it tested every thing that I've been through in life. I didn't feel any different about baby, baby. Whatever reason that she killed my dad uh, 31 years ago, I don't know. I wasn't there, you know. Um, of course, I wish she wouldn't have done it. I miss my dad. I love my dad. Um, he was my fucking hero. You know, my life would have been completely different with him in it. But here I am right now. I wouldn't change anything that happened in my life. Any hard time, any decision that I made, at this point I wouldn't change it because it all led for me to be right here where I'm at right now, doing what I love to do, having a testimony to share with others. But it was that, that moment where, you know, 10 years ago, I might not have been in the same place. You know, I might have fucking choked her out and killed everybody in the damn house, yeah. you know. Um, but I didn't feel any different about her. And <laughs> she was such a gangster, she didn't budge. She didn't make a face, she didn't move. You know, like when he said that out loud, the whole room got silent. And I just said, Paul, we're not here to talk about that right now. Now's not time. She passed that night. Um, you know, and I don't know what the reason was. You know, it could have been a, a numerous things. Do you think Paul knows the reason? They all did. Yep. And, I, and you know what? As much, because we, you know, there's two brothers, and there was two brothers, two sisters, um, to my dad might be more that I'm missing just not thinking right now but in the tight circle and I don't hold it against any of them I know that at this point I've had you know conversations with a, a few other people and it was one of those moments where it was like damn we just lost our brother we don't want to lose our sister Whatever the instance was, if it was an accident, if it was, you know, heat of the moment, 
if they were arguing, gun went off, whatever it was. Uh, it was definitely um, something that they all made a pact wow. and held on to, which I, I respect, you know. Um, and, you know, it sucks that I'll never know what really happened. Like, I would have loved to have had one more day with her to just say, hey, baby, look, I'm not mad at you. I just want to know what happened. You know, like, like what, what, to bring some closure to myself, which closure was already met because when I was told that he didn't die from a suicide, that was closure from that one chapter where I was suicidal my whole life, thinking yeah. that living with that regret and thinking that I could have changed that. But then when my uncle told me that he had been killed, then you got another 20 years where I'm like revengeful and like, well, who killed him? I want to know, like, what was it? You know, my dad was a hustler. He had I found out he had made, he had won $8,500 gambling that night. He was going through a divorce with my little brother's mom. Um, you know, was there somebody that was jealous behind that? Did they rob him? Like, you know, so then finding out that it was her did bring closure to that second you know, time period of living with revenge. Cause now I don't have revenge, you know. I got rid of the regret, then I got rid of the revenge. So it brought me to a, a place of just utter peace with that situation um, that, you know, tormented me since I was 10 in different, different ways and different aspects. Making me suicidal, making me violent, making me seek revenge, um, guilt, you know, so definitely close the chapters, you know, close some really great closure. I would love to just, know, I would have loved to know, yeah. you know, what really happened that night. But um, it, it is good to, you know, have that, find that peace, whatever the cost may be, you know. Yeah. Well, let's go back to when you were after so, your dad died. There's a lot of lessons that I learned in it, you know. Um, I'd been selling weed, selling pills, um, cocaine here and there. This 16-year-old kid that came and got weed from me. Um, he was living on his own, took care of his mom. She, he, he lived in his own place, had a baby, had a wife you know, young Hispanic kid, 16, 17. He would come and get weed from me, fronted. He worked a full-time construction job, hardworking kid. You, If you met him, you'd think he was 25, 30. Like, um, young guy though. And uh, he was getting weed fronted from me, you know, 10 pounds at a time for a while, pay his bills. Um, <clears throat> He tells me one day, he's like, man, he's like, I'm tired of nickel and diamond. He's like, I'm going to see my family. He leaves, goes and sees some of his family, comes back the man. <laughs> like this man comes back with a semi following him, um, set up a whole organization. Um, and I can talk about a lot of this because the statute of limitations are 
past, but, um, and I just fell right into, fell right into line. You know, it was one of those things. It's like, you know, I learned early, especially in the drug business. I may be the boss today. You may be the boss tomorrow. You have two options, either fight each other or fall in line, work together. You know, a motor has a thousand parts. Um, thermostat being one of the smallest ones. But if that thermostat goes out, that whole motor's gonna run hot and not run, you know? So always, always never had jealousy. It was always play your position, you know? Um, same way he played his position when I was the big guy, you know? So kid comes back and uh, he was, you know, he had a, a lot of big dreams. He um, started getting huge loads in. So he's obviously connected with the oh, one yeah. of the Mexican cartels. Yeah. Well, there was a, yeah, there was actually um, he was from Honduras. He's actually in Honduras right now. Okay. Uh, they sent him back. Uh, still have contact with him. You know, he's turned his life around uh, as much as you can in Honduras. Mm. You know, like since he's been over there, he's been shot. Um, ran over by the police, been in a couple of huge accidents. Like it's, it's a different world over there for sure. And he was born in, he was born in Honduras, but brought here when he was three. Okay. So he had lived here his whole life. When, uh, when we went down, he was 24. Um, and a multi, multi-millionaire, but they, you know, of course they took everything he had and, um, so, you know, there was loads coming in every way that we could find a, a way to get them in, you know, sometimes by vehicle, sometimes by plane, sometimes by, um, you know, car, semi, whatever, you know, there's a lot of different ways to transport. Uh, when I was actually doing transportation, we'd have false bottoms and pickup truck beds, um, dash compartments, you know, where the whole airbag would come out like a lift up, like a fucking transformer, you know? Yeah. And, uh, so, uh, that load got busted. Um, at the airport. Yeah. What was it in? It was in the airplane. It was in the airplane. Yeah. I mean, in a suitcase. Um, I'm not sure how it was actually packaged that time. Okay. There was, you know, um, there was also a load that came up at the same time in a truck and that's what caught it all was there was a guy on the case who had got busted and he was giving them, he didn't want to snitch on us or rat us out, but the feds had him and they were, he was spoon feeding them whatever he could to stay free. So one thing led to another where, um, they had had enough of enough surveillance and they had GPS on a lot of the vehicles. So they caught an actual truck coming up. It delivered. They caught the truck coming out with cash, um, small amount of cash trans transporters only get like per unit. Okay. Paid, but they get paid cash right then per unit. 
So say he was transporting 50 kilos of cocaine, he was getting a thousand bucks a kilo, the transporter was. So he made the drive from Southern California to Nashville, made 50 grand, three days. Um, catch him with the cash. Uh, same night, they hit four different houses. F found one with like half a million dollars cash in it. Um, found a house full of guns. Um, there had actually just been a robbery a couple weeks before that where they got my guy and us um, for you know a large large amount of money so it was kind of like when when they busted it was like on a rebound um and uh i don't know the full details of the airport okay I just i know because my where my portion of the case came in was from the truck the airport was a uh same load, different route. Well, correct me if I'm wrong, but the, what I read was $2 million in cocaine mm. at that time. It was actually $4 million What is $4 million was, in cocaine? How much is that? Uh, that would be about 140 keys, 150 keys. Uh, let's see, $4 million. 150 keys. That's a lot of coke. Yeah. Actually, it would have been 200 keys. Even more. Yeah. But, you know, they also do street value. So when they say, when they say $2 million, right? When they say $2 million to us, that would be 80 keys. Okay. To them, that could be 50 keys because they, they're looking at street value compared to wholesale. Gotcha. So, yeah, $2 million would have been 50 keys, and then it was another 50 kilos in the truck. So it was what would have been $4 million uh, in reality, you know, probably three amongst the two and a half, amongst yeah. the two loads. Um. But that's also before it. we get it and repackage it. Because, you know, we're getting cocaine at a certain level, a certain percentage to where we're able to break it back down to a paste with an isotol and acetone, reprint the bricks and take, you know, 50 keys and turn it into 60. Gotcha. Which is a quarter million dollars profit on a wholesale level, not even on a street value level. Um, just, you know, in a night of re-bricking re them, you know. Are you given a directive on how much you can dilute it? Or uh, No. No? It's all up to you? Once yeah. it changes, once yeah. it's in your hands, it's all up to you? Yeah, it's ours. But, you know, we sell, we sell to a lot of people that, you know, used it for uh, purposes to, like, recook. So they would you know, turn it into crack, which anytime you're dealing with people that are using it for that purpose, it has to stay pure enough to where they don't lose. Okay. Because they'll take the product and they'll cook it up to see what comes back, you know, because it'll come down to its purest form. So, and of course you want to always compete and have the best 
you know, unless you're just dumping it off to make money, you know. But um, there's a lot more pride and power in having really good product. Gotcha. So uh, never never sold any bad, bad shit. You know? All right. You don't stay in business long if you do, or, you know, the guys that really diluted too much or um, short-lived or, you know. But, uh, yeah, so drug bus happens, hits the, hits the news, right? Um, they're calling it the George Burley cartel, right? When, the, when it first hits the news, I'm looking at a, I'm watching the news. So you see this shit all happen. Yeah, like literally see this it happen. your shipment. You're watching your shipment get busted. Not only that, I'm news. watching because that robbery had just happened. So they had, when that happened, my guys lost all their guns. So I had just brought them a whole bunch of guns. Um, so I'm looking at all this cocaine, all this money, all this weed, and some of my favorite guns I've, I had ever owned in my life sitting on this table on the fucking news. Just like, holy fuck. They call it the George Burley drug cartel. The name George Burley was just a fake ID. It wasn't anybody's real name. The guy who they had him booked at first under George Burley, then they changed it to Octavian Palma. Neither one of those were his name, you know. Um, but the house I was living in was under George Burley. Lights, water, all of that. Oh, wow. Um, so I'm sitting there like literally looking out the mini blinds like, holy fuck, they're coming for me full force to the point that I moved out of the house, took my wife at the time and kids and went and lived in a hotel in Brentwood in one of those extended stays. Yeah. Like I've got this 5,000 square foot house in Brentwood and I won't even step foot <laughs> on the property. Um, nine months go by. David came and got me. I'm fighting a federal case on pills already. Uh, I had a good friend of mine. I'd been dealing, rewind a little bit. I'd been dealing <clears throat> with this girl for years, um, getting pharmaceuticals. She would bring me tens of thousands of Lortab pain pills um, a week. And I'd been doing that with her for a while. How many? About 20, 10 to 20,000. 10 to 20,000 a, a week? week? Yeah. You you get rid of all that? Every bit of them. Faster than we could keep them. Um, my wife, who's here with me now, used to break them out, count them, and run them all over town for me. She was my best friend at the time, you know. And um, crazy, I had, a, I had a job. I was the uh, maintenance supervisor of an apartment complex in West Nashville where it's all one-bedroom apartments and literally gated community. I could sit in an apartment that I had rented, showed as rented um, to a fake file, sit there and watch every person come through that gate and could run them down. Poor apartment complex probably still has 
thousands of empty bottles behind the drywall. Yeah. You know, <laughs> but had our own little organization in those apartments. It was, uh, it was long lived and, uh, you know, but so she had told me, she said, Hey, I want to, you know, take a little break. And I was like, all right, cool. Like, you know, we made a bunch of money. So she takes a break. Literally six months later, she calls me back. Like, hey, you ready to work again? And I'm already doing fine with everything else. And I'm like, yeah, sure. Like, you know, it's extra money. We had always done good business, made a lot of money together. <clears throat> she goes, well, all I have is the big ones. I'm talking about Oxycontin. And I was like, I don't mess with those. I had a friend pass from them. I'm watching the opiate. Um, you know, you don't, I didn't feel, feel as bad selling lower tabs. A lot of people that buy lower tabs are the construction workers, the car dealers, the, you know, just the mechanics, people that pop a couple pain pills and go on about their day, work, take care of their business. Still terrible drug, but not to the level that I'm watching Oxycontin destroy people's lives. Yeah. You got a 10 milligram pain pill and you got an 80 milligram pain pill that they're snorting and shooting, injecting, you know. Uh, it was a big difference for me morally in the two drugs. So I had never sold one or ingested one ever. Still to this day, I've never sold one or taken one. Did five years in prison for him. So she calls. She's like, hey, uh, I've got these. I'm like, absolutely not. One of my best friends at the time, Army Ranger, went and did two tours in Iraq I wore his dog tags while we were, while he was gone, watched over his kids. He was like, man, dude, my benefits ain't kicked in yet. I don't, I can't do anything with weed and cocaine. All the guys at the fucking base will buy these, man. You know, they're, they're taking these pills. Please get them for me. So I'm like, he's like, look, man, you're getting them for this price. They sell for this. He was like, I can make a lot of money. I'll make you some money. So I was like, all right, you know, we'll get them. She's supposed to bring him to me. She calls me last minute, says, I need you to meet me halfway to Memphis. I'm like, all right, cool. Jump in the truck, driving out there. She calls, hey, my car's late getting out of the shop. I need you to come all the way to Memphis. By this time, I'm already halfway there. I'm like, all right, fuck it. Call her like, hey, where are we meeting? She's like, hey, just meet me at Walmart. I had to run in Walmart real quick. Um, just meet me at this Walmart. And, you know, we'll go do the deal. I'm like, all right, cool. Pull in. It's me and him and um, my ex-brother-in-law, the one that passed. Um, and we pull up. She hops in the back of the truck. I got the radio up a little bit, so the, the wire is not that good, you know. <clears throat> but long story short, I show her some money. She goes, okay, jumps out the truck and runs across the parking lot. So automatically I'm scrambling, hit the button for the, you know, the dash pops up on all the vehicles that we drove, shove the money in there. And next thing I know, lights everywhere. They hit the truck. No transaction went through. They didn't find the money. Um, they take us, they interrogate us, they confiscate the truck, put us out in the middle of Memphis. Like, I guess trying to be, you know, trying to scare us or whatever. So we get people to come pick us up from Nashville. 
don't hear anything. Month later, they come and arrest me. I get uh, bond, of course. I'm out on bond fighting that case. My guy who was the Army Ranger, uh, I'm not going to say his name because I would never do that to him. Um, we're not friends anymore, of course. He completely told on me, told him everything, gave him everything that he could give him to save his ass. And, um, you know, I justified it by saying, you know, they would have took all his benefits. He was disabled. He caught, uh, kicked in the door, some shit blew in his face, lost his lung behind it. You know, he went through hell. So um, I just cut ties with him. He told on me, but, you know, I never seek revenge on him because, you know, it's, he was a really good friend. I, I, uh, every, not every, you can't expect everybody to fucking really stand in the face yeah. of the federal government and say, no, I'm going to fucking own this and take the fall, you know. Um, I made the decision to knowing, you know, that I was going to be gone. I was going to go away from my kids. They were going to go through some shit. I was going to go through some shit, you know, but I wanted to come out with my head high and know that I never told on anybody and that I accepted my fucking, um, my charge and accepted my responsibility and laid down, did what I was supposed to. Cause that's how I was raised, but you can't expect everybody to do that. And Eight out of ten of them won't, you know. That's why it's one of the thousand reasons I would never sell drugs again. Yeah. <laughs> um, but so I was fighting that case already, and the big cocaine bus happened, and I'm just like, I'm knowing they're coming for me. I'm literally um, those ten, eleven months were torture. I mean, you know, you, like I said, I lived in a hotel for a while. Then I moved in. Actually, me and Jelly Roll moved in together. Um, got a place. But it was like you didn't want to really, I didn't want to, you know, grow any roots anywhere. Yeah. Because they're either come, fixing to come pick me up and charge me with millions of dollars of cocaine, a shit ton of guns, and a whole lot of weed. Um so, you know, it was, it was a really, really rough time just knowing they were coming, but not knowing when. I get a call. My guy's in there. He's like, hey, man, feds dropped the charge. We're all getting out. They originally arrested 11 of them, I think, the first night. Um, none of them legal. Legal to a point, you know what I mean? But all of them from different El Salvador, Honduras, Mexico. And he calls me, he's like, man, Feds dropped the charge. They didn't have enough evidence. So I'm like, oh man, like fucking yes, my guys are coming home. This is behind us. A couple of days later, I get a call from the Feds like always. Hey, you need to come take a drug test. I'm like, all right, cool. Go to take a drug test. I'm in gym clothes, about to go to the gym. Uh, go take a drug test, go up, take my drug test. They're like, hey, can you just hang out for just a second? Somebody needs to talk to you. I'm like, all right, cool. And here they come. Uh, hey, we're with the, you know, drug task force, Metro. You're under arrest. 
And I'm like, for what? And they're like, conspiracy of 200 kilos of cocaine and 300 pounds of marijuana in a school zone. And I'm like, fuck. All right, so I go in. Um, they set my bond to half a million dollars. Uh, Yellow Wolf was one of the first people that I called. Uh, he's like, man, I'll come make the bond. You know, I, I could get out 50 grand. He's like, I'll come make it. Um, but then the feds put a hold on me because I was already fighting the federal case. <clears throat> so it was one of those days where it was just like, okay, I'm here. And uh, reality sunk in. I was going to be there for a while. And I decided to make the best of it. But as the case went on, um, of course, the first offers they were throwing around were like 40, 50 years for the cocaine. Um, it wasn't but a couple months into it when they started realizing they didn't have as much. We filed a motion to get the GPS thrown out. The All the wiretaps were illegal as fuck. Um, so as their case starts unraveling, they started, they went from 40 for me to 15. And of course I asked my lawyer, I'm like, well, it's 200 keys of cocaine, 300 pounds of weed. I've never been caught with anything. They don't have me talking about anything but money. Uh, can we not just like plead out and say that I was selling weed? And he's like, yeah, if you make a statement that you were buying weed from these guys. I was like, well, I'm not going to make a fucking statement that I was doing anything with these guys. You yeah. Know? Like that's just straight out snitching. So ended up. Uh, I pled guilty to cocaine conspiracy of special amounts. I uh, got a 13-year sentence, Class A felony, 13-year sentence. Um, supposed to be run concurrent with my Fed time. In the process, I go to court for the Feds. They give me 57 months for attempt to possess with the intent to distribute Oxycontin. Um, which is the dumbest charge and attempted uh, to possess with the intentions to distribute. Yeah. Uh, but it's, it's all falls on a conspiracy, you know, like I'm a, uh, third time convicted drug felon, uh, international drug trafficker have all these tags and labels on my record and I've never been caught with anything. Wow. Um, it's always been, phone conversation, hearsay, or, you know, um, just wrong place, wrong time for them, you know. But you were doing it. Oh, I was 100% doing it. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, that was why I didn't fight. I, I, fought, I fought enough to make sure I wasn't going to be gone forever. You know, like I, I got a great lawyer and, you know, we – made some valid points and, you know, showed that they had holes in their case. But um, it was, when I went to jail, it was such a relief. It was like this brick, uh, a pallet of bricks lifted off my chest, you know, because I'm like, okay, I don't, uh, now I don't have to, of course I'm in prison, so I got to watch my back, but I don't got to watch over my shoulder for the police. I don't got to keep hiding, running, um, you know, <clears throat> it was a, uh, as much as prison is chaotic in its own, it was such a piece from the 
mental and emotional turmoil that you go through in living in that life. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So, uh, you know, prison was literally the best thing that's ever happened to me. How long were you in prison for? Five years. Did you feel like relieved the whole time you were in there, or when did you start getting antsy? Uh, well, it was off and on. You know, like I was, I was relieved when I got there, and then of course you want to get home. You know, I'm watching my whole world fall apart. I'm watching the mother of my kids and my wife at the time start dating other guys, getting into drugs again. Like when I left, she was sober. So <clears throat> watching her fall back into that vicious cycle. Calling home, my five-year-old daughter uh, is crying. You know, mommy hasn't woke up all day. You know, I've got a ten-month-old baby at home, a three-year-old daughter and a five-year-old daughter, two and a half-year-old daughter and a five-year-old daughter, and having to talk my five-year-old through how to teach her how to make macaroni and cheese so she can feed her siblings from a prison phone because they haven't ate in two days. Damn. You know, or hearing her cry because mommy's passed out on the front porch and she won't wake up. Um, my 10-month-old baby, uh, Sincere, my son, he was like one, one and a half, got completely ran over by a car in the driveway because they were all over there on drugs and shit, and he's just playing in the driveway. They backed over him, like literally, and then backed back over him when they realized they had ran over him. Luckily, he was just soft enough as a child to not break any bones, but had like tire tracks in his fucking forehead. Jesus. Um, No, I'm not going to say names, but had daughters molested in drug houses. Um, You know, just everything just crumbling and just falling apart and watching them just get drug in. Like kids couldn't come see me cause they were so ate up with bed bugs. You know what I mean? Yep. And here I just had them in this big mansion and living this whole life and you know, all this money and thinking that I was doing this for a righteous cause or to fucking give them a better life. And I drug them through a deeper hole than I had ever been through. Damn. You know? Um, <clears throat> and so it was that, realization that like I have to let go of all those fucking irrational beliefs that were ever telling me that that was okay because right now in that moment I'm a pure piece of fucking shit you know what I mean Yeah. where I thought I was this noble stand up father good father feed my kids got them in nice schools, nice clothes, we're driving fancy cars. Now I'm just a deadbeat in prison and my kids are out there fucking living the worst life possible. I'm being drugged completely through the mud by my decisions, you know. Um, And that's what really started me saying, now fuck this, I'm gonna get out and I'm gonna be a good father. I'm gonna give those kids a real life, real stability. I'm going to break this cycle because it's the same life that their mother had lived. You know, I didn't live it as much because my mom wasn't an addict, 
um, had a lot of family members that were, you know, alcoholics and addicts, but not to the point where it affected my childhood like that. My mom was a good fucking mom and, you know, um, she may have dealt with a lot of abusive husbands and shit like that, but I didn't, I didn't have that kind of, yeah. I didn't have to go through that. And so watching them go through that was like, okay, yeah, this isn't it. This is not what I want for them, you know, and I'm gonna make sure this never fucking happens to them again. And I knew, <clears throat> like I told you before, I knew I had lost control of anything outside. I mean, I had friends, incredible friends that would go through and, you know, break a little rent money. Half the time it wouldn't get spent on rent, you know. Um, if there was, you know, a situation I could, you know, get people to go help out. But we were only about, I was only about two years into my prison sentence when she completely lost control and the kids went into foster care. Luckily, they went with some friends of mine at first. <clears throat> um, and throughout the whole time they were in foster care, they were with foster parents that I knew, at least. Uh, there became one point where they were getting close to going, being separated and sent to separate foster homes. Shit. And uh, a lady stepped in and got custody, uh, you know, became a foster parent and fostered all of them. But that also came with me, like, finding friends to make sure that money was, you know, that extra money was helping the kids. And, you know, like, it was uh, the last person that finally had had them in her foster care. Um, you know, she was in love with me. And it, that was a whole, turned into a whole other thing where she was using them against me to try to manipulate me to be with her when I came home. So that was a battle. And then they were getting taken from her or they had to be uh, adopted because they had been in the foster system for too long. So it got to a point where it got down to the wire to where like, no, you're gonna have to sign these papers and never see your kids again and not be allowed to reach out to them ever, you know? And I'm fresh out of prison at this point. Like, absolutely not. Like, fuck that. Whatever it takes, whatever, whatever I got to do, you know. And um, within my new rational belief system, though, yeah, of course, you know, because the old me, if I wouldn't have went through everything I went through in prison, transitioning and, you know, transforming into the man that I am now. You know, I would have made the same decisions when I came out. And that's what happens to a lot of guys. They go in, they make a lot of changes. They got all these goals and all these aspirations and all this shit they're going to do when they get out. And when you get out, the fucking life hits you, you know. Um, obstacles, obstacles, obstacles. And you have to be able to persevere. You have to say, I am not going back there. I will fucking dig ditches. I will do whatever I got to do to make an honest living. I'm not going back to prison. And if you really have that mindset, you won't go back. Uh, the, the parole system, it's not designed to put you back in prison. It's designed to keep you out, transition you back into society and help you build. But so many people buck it and they just had, they had those same irrational beliefs that it's us versus them, you know, that, you know, I hear it all the time. I'm sitting in my parole office. I got to go there 
every time I need a travel pass and I'm sitting there and I'm listening to these guys. Oh, she trying to violate me. She doesn't want to see me do good. I can't get no job. I can't. And I'm sitting there like, dude, I've seen guys come out of 25-year prison bids for murder and get a job the next day. Like, if you want it, you can have it. And that's something that I've, I've really been able to, like, really preach to my platform and my fan base is like, look, man, I came home six years ago with nothing. Had an ankle bracelet sleeping in my brother's basement. Six years later, I've got custody of my kids were in foster care. Six years later, I got custody of all of my kids. We got seven kids. Just bought my family the biggest house we've ever stepped foot in. And then I give them this little spill. I'm like, you know what? I just did the other day. I was walking a family member through the tour, through the house, giving them the tour. And after about the fifth time she said it, I had to stop her. She kept saying, boy, you so lucky. I had to finally say, this ain't got nothing to do with luck. This is faith and hard work. The American dream is alive and well. If you want it, you can have it. You just got to fucking stand on your feet and grab it. You have to put the fucking work in. Faith and hard work. That's all it takes. Believe and believe in yourself. You know? Um, so, you know, through that whole process, I've been able to really... It's given me a purpose, you know. Um, my kids, of course, give me purpose, but the fans give me such a purpose as well. I, I get to see them, meet them, and they're like hugging me like, man, dude, your music got me off drugs, got me through a prison sentence, got me through a divorce, took me back to my wife, got me back with my kids. Whatever they've been through, my music has been able to inspire them to just keep pushing. And those are the moments that fuel my next step, you know? Cause I'm like, man, I can't let these people down. Yeah. I can't take steps backwards. They're looking at me like I made it out. I, I did time in the streets. I did time in prison. I was addicted to drugs. I was addicted to the life. I've been, you know, I've been through all of this and I'm just like them, but I made the decision to fucking change. And now, you know, here I am, I beat the statistics, you know, recidivisions three years. And I think it's like 70% or some shit of people that, that go back to prison within the first three years. Like I beat that twice now, you know what I mean? Like we're six years out. Yeah. I haven't even had a speeding ticket. Um, so, you know, being able to show people that that's possible has been, uh, and and to be able to be inspired by their stories, the strength and hope in their eyes and what they've gained from my music and what they've been through in their life and made it through. It just, it continues to fuel that fire and keep my integrity in check, keep my, my path in check, you know? Well, that's definitely a positive message. Yeah. When, when did you discover your talent in music? Uh, I've been writing poems since I was a little kid. I wanted to sing. I wanted to rap. You know, I was an 80s baby. So by the time I was 10, 11, rap music was really, you know, coming to the world. And uh, huge Tupac fan, you know. Um, so I always loved music. I had the opportunity, like in summertime, sometimes to go on the road with Waylon, 
when my mom was singing back up and get to go see shows and, you know, go on tour with him, riding the tour bus, stay in hotel, you know, be backstage and Waylon's concerts. And so I always had like a love for music. Um, deep, deep, deep. Like it's, it's what I, I can, I can literally pinpoint every moment or time in my life to a song. No. Like what song was like just the soundtrack of that year or that three months or that, you know what I mean? Like, um, I've always just really held on to music like that and like really gravitated towards, um, the emotion in music. So, um, I always wanted to do it early teens, you know, while I'm selling drugs and stuff, I used to always take these little tape recorders and record me rapping, freestyle rapping. Um, when I was 21, I caught my first set of drug charges for a uh, sale of 25 pounds of marijuana. And I went and did 13 months for that. Came out, was on community corrections for three years. Single father with Brianna and Little Will, which are my two oldest. Brianna's now an artist, working on her second solo album, 22 years old, fucking killing it. That's amazing. <clears throat> um, you know, she's the one that I really, like, changed my life for. And in the first time I changed my life, uh, got off drugs and, you know, but, uh, I was sitting in jail then and in 2002 and all these guys were over there writing these songs and rapping like they'd be in a circle in, in county jail. So one day I was just in there and I was like, man, I'm going to write a verse. So I'm writing, writing, writing. And I sat there and practiced it, practiced it, practiced it. Came over there one day, they were just in the circle and I just got the nerve up to walk over there and I just started rapping. And they were like, oh shit, like we didn't know you rapped. And <clears throat> so there was a friend of mine in there. He had a song on the radio, but it caught a charge, drug charge and was sitting in jail. And uh, a guy named Lil Homie Rip. And uh, now he goes by Cashville Ace, but um, he was my celly at the time. And so then I got out and recorded a song with him. And then I was like, man, I want to do this. A friend of mine, um, his mother had passed away and he got like a little settlement or, you know, whatever he got from her passing. And he bought a home studio. So we put it in my apartment. I was a single dad with two kids and just started recording songs and decided this is what I want to do. And of course, it wasn't paying the bills. So it started in a small apartment. Oh, yeah. With your buddy's inheritance. Yeah. Yep. Which he probably like, wasn't much. He got like 17 grand. He spent like five of it on some studio equipment, bought a car that got stolen two weeks later and a bunch of clothes that were in the trunk of the car that got stolen and was completely broke within three months of his mom dying. <laughs> but, uh, you know, but we had the studio, you know, for years. <clears throat> and um, he, uh, yeah, so it started in, started in there recording me and Jelly Roll met. Uh, I was out passing out flyers for a show that I was doing, um, selling my CD. He was there hosting a rap battle downtown, and we bumped into each other and uh, just became best friends. 
And so we did music. I was, you know, uh, did good for like six years till about 2008. And then I got back into the drug industry, probably 2007. Um, got back into the drug industry and, you know, took off from there. Why so, did you get back in the drug industry? Were you just getting discouraged that you weren't? Yeah, it was just it was straight up. Like I literally got an eviction notice on the door. Okay. You know, and I was working full time, worked at a restaurant. I'd waited tables, went back to working for my uncle Tadpole doing construction, you know, wintertime hit, no work. Um, by this time I'm ha I've got two kids that I've been a single dad with. Now I got a new old lady. Her two brothers are living with us because they're underage and their mom's a drug addict. Um, now I've had my third child, Innocence. And it was just, the you know, I had a lot of mouths to feed and I, I can sit here and justify it, but it was because I wanted money, you know, and I could have went and tried to find a better job or picked up a second job. Or there's a lot of things I could have done in hindsight. Yeah. But in that moment with the belief system and that I had been raised up with and instilled with, I was like, man, I ain't got no choice. Yeah, I mean, fuck you. Well, back yeah. to what you know. Yeah. Um, and that's how I got back in selling drugs. And then I got a record deal. They were going to do a movie about my life. Uh, signed to a record label out of New York named Mass Bomb. Uh, they had another artist signed at the time and came down, started recording records, signed me to a deal. Um, went down to Atlanta, recorded a bunch of records with Drummer Boy, who at the time had, he's a huge producer, had you know, tons of fucking songs on the radio, all the Jeezy implies and like, you know, all the stuff that was happening right then. And then the owner of the label, his fa father passed away. And, you know, his dad was his best friend, mentor, father, you know, uh, and so he just kind of like lost his shit and shut the label down. And I had quit selling drugs again, you know, was just living off the label and, you know, just recorded this album, fixing to try to, you know, have my big break. And then that tragedy happened in his family and uh, he shut the label down. I went back to selling drugs, got super discouraged, was like, fuck music. You know, this, this isn't it for me. I'm tired of, you know, doing it. Still ended up releasing the project as like a mixtape. Um, and then he came back. Uh, I got indicted for the federal charge. Right after I got indicted for the federal charge, he hits me up like, hey, man, like, you know, I'm so sorry, man. You know, I just had some personal shit I had to deal with. with my dad, lit, you know, dying. And I was like, well, I'm going to prison. I just caught a federal indictment. And he's like, man, I'm so sorry. I was like, well, it's not your fault. You know what I mean? Like, but so then he jumped back into the picture. We ended up scurrying between that year and a half that I was fighting that federal charge before all the state shit happened. And I, you know, got picked up on the cocaine bust. He jumped back into the picture and we were just working. I was recording, 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 recording. And that's where outlaw shit came from which now has 60 million views and started an entire genre. Damn. Um, that's, you know, um, 
So, and then he stuck by my side all the way through prison. Like he started my Instagram. I was in prison when Instagram started. You know, he started my Instagram, started my YouTube channel, started everything and really helped build my brand. I would write these like inspirational letters from prison. He would fucking type them up and post them, you know, and built my fan base through my entire journey of me before prison and going into prison. And he's still my right-hand man. He's the one that I said, he's in Florida right now. He's usually following me with a camera. Cause uh, I mean, do we, we have documentary footage starting in 2007. Nice. To today. Nice. Me going to prison and me getting out of prison. Holy shit. Um, like he picked me up from prison uh, with the cameras. Wow. So we've got, which there's some great episodes on YouTube. Um, I think there's like 15, maybe 17 episodes before prison and then after prison. Uh, but they're getting pulled pretty soon because we're gearing up to set, get that puppy on Netflix. That's awesome. Yeah, because it's, uh, we've got a lot that never that we never put on YouTube. Because it was like too dark and too deep. Yeah. You know, I've got final interviews from the mother of my child, of my children before she died, like in full blown heroin out in the middle of the streets, like some gangster shit. <laughs> like, Damn, dude. So we've got, you know, we've got, we got a lot of stuff that we haven't put out. So we're working on putting that together as a collective whole now. But so. You know, he came back in. We were scurrying. We got uh, I am struggle. We got a uh, I am struggle finished right before I went to prison, and then of course I got we, did, we didn't know I was gonna get locked up when I got locked up. We released outlaw shit the morning they arrested me. The morning. The morning, dude. Like so, I was on the high. I was like, oh, I just got my first video out, you know, and then boom, I got arrested that morning. So. Uh, you know, watching there was no country rap when I released that. Like Colt Ford was kind of starting and had like a little, you know, name buzzing, but there was no like major country rap records. And I hear I had a whole project of them. Um, so as we dropped that, it just really sparked this whole genre, you know, of music that is now massive. But, uh, so he, yeah, he stuck by my side through all that, um, through prison. And did you release anything when you were in prison? Well, I released that album when I was in prison, and that album had a song on it called "Black Curtains," and it was a sample of Waylon singing uh, "White Room," in a white room with black curtains, right? And uh, the song is talking about me breaking the cycle from my father to me, to my son. I'm sitting in county jail and they're like, man, we really need to shoot a video. We gotta figure out how to shoot a video. So they shoot this whole storyline and they're like, man, we just really need to get some footage of you. So this camera crew, they had already been in and done a couple documentaries for people in prison. And Nashville Scene had just come in there and did a interview with me for an article they were doing on me. So I was like, well, y'all can try. So they get in, they come in, we do an interview like me and you were doing. Um, I give a whole bunch of inspirational stuff, which has all been used in documentary stuff. 
But then we're sitting there and the the PR for the the publicist for the jail is there and they're like, Would would you mind if he rapped this verse? And she's like, Oh no, that'll be cool. So I rap the verse, turn it into a music video, get sued. They try to take us take it down. The sheriff at the time, fucking, he lo- loses his shit. He actually walked in on his kids watching the video. Oh, shit. Right? And here it is, an inmate in county jail, maximum security, in my uniform, <laughs> rapping, <laughs> rapping, and then the camera following me through their fucking jail. Holy shit. You know what I mean? So, like, he was super pissed. We had all the proper paperwork signed. Yeah. Uh, but it, 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 it hit all the news. I'm in prison by this point, right? I had already got moved from jail to prison. So if anybody wants to know the layout of the Nashville jail, they just got to watch well, your video. Well, it's now, yeah. Yeah, they could have. They could have. Um, but so I'm sitting in prison. They're like, struggle your own fucking the news. I'm like, oh, God, here we go. I, they got another indictment, like some other bust is happening. It's going down. And I go in there, and it's literally my music video is playing on the news. You can look it up. It is fucking hilarious. <laughs> and that poor publicist, she was just trying to, she was trying to scramble to save her ass. Yeah, you know what I mean. She was like, "We were completely duped. He, you know, they they acted like they were coming in here to do a documentary, and then we didn't know they were going to turn into a music video, which we did. Dude, the documentary is out. Like, we didn't lie. We just." Use it to our advantage to get some things that we needed to get. <laughs> some extracurricular. Yeah. Um, thank God I was already in prison by the time that happened, or he probably would have sent some of them goons in there to beat my ass at <laughs> sheriff. He was so mad. He tried to make us take it down, but we had all the proper paperwork, so we just refused, and they let it sit up. And the thing was, it was a really good fucking story. It's a good message. You know, so as much as, much as they wanted to try to, you know, be mad it's like fuck what do you yeah. do you know so that that hit and went viral uh yeah while you were in yeah i uh, that fired everybody up in prison oh yeah no that was nuts and i didn't actually get to see the whole video um until i was being transported i made parole from the state and i was being transported to the feds so they'll throw you in a van dude, and they'll take you to these little podunk towns going from state prison, which was in East Tennessee, all the way down to Osceola, Georgia, and then fly me from Atlanta to Oklahoma, but that to where their uh, classification is, the feds. But although they'd like take me in a van, drop me off at a county jail, dip out. Three days later, another van come pick me up, take me to another county jail. So I was like in this transportation for like a month. And one of those little county jails, I was sitting in the holding cell, and one of the guards kept looking at me, and I was like, man, I don't think this guy likes me. He's like, hey, man, are you Struggle Jennings? And I was like, yeah. And he's like, he's like, man, I fucking love them outlaw shit and Black Curtains video. And I was like, dude, I haven't even got to see Black Curtains. He said, well, you have now. And he turned this big screen around and hit play on that thing. I, I'm sitting in a jail cell. You know, through glass, but I got to watch the video for the first time. Oh, that's I cool. I bawled like a baby. Uh, <laughs> fucking so emotional. Like, so it was, you know, I was gaining steam and momentum while I was in there. Um, and, of course, Yellow Wolf was one of my best friends. 
before. Jelly Roll was my best friend before. And so they're gaining a b bunch of momentum. Yellow Wolf had signed with Eminem. Jelly Roll's climbing up the ranks, you know, um, busting his ass touring and putting out music. And the whole time they're screaming, free struggle, free struggle, free struggle. So when I came home, I had that sense of hope also, you know, watching them making it and them both saying, bro, it's possible. Just don't go back to prison. Just keep working. It's possible. So I hit the ground with just full faith and uh, full motivation and full, you know, um, determination and discipline and dedication and, you know, just stuck to it, stuck to my guns and kept doing it. And it's just continued to grow, you know. That's incredible. So what, what was the next big hit after you got out? So when I first got out, Yellow Wolf produced a whole project on me. And there was one on there called Like Father, Like Son. Kind of the same thing as Black Curtain, just talking about the, you know, my grandfather and then my dad becoming who my grandfather was and then me becoming who my dad was. Um, and it's a point in my show every night still where I get to give a speech and say, you know, the biggest thing that I learned in prison was I got to be the man I would want my sons to be. I got to be the man I would want my daughters to date. You know, it's up to me to break that cycle. Um, and I tell them to go home and raise those boys to be the fucking men we need. You know, it's like a really good, powerful moment but in the show. But that was the next uh, big hit that came out. And I was fresh out of, you know, fresh out of prison. And um, they had tried to send me back once because I was releasing these documentary series on YouTube. And... The, the federal halfway house was like, oh, fuck no. Like the feds were like, no, what are you doing? Like, you're not allowed to do this, you know? Um, and so they tried to send me back, violated me. Wait, hold on. You're not allowed to do what? Release content? No. Why? Not at, well, at the time you weren't because that's not, like, you're supposed to be doing this. Okay. You're supposed to have a job go to work every day, like how, like, so one of the, the, the loophole where they were trying to send me back was because when I left the federal prison, they give you five hours to get to the halfway house. It's a three hour drive. I haven't seen my kids in five years. Sushi restaurant, hibachi restaurant, one block from the halfway house. I stopped and ate with my kids. They told me I couldn't veer from the path. So I thought that meant like, don't go way out the fucking way. Don't be somewhere you're not supposed to be. I stopped to eat before I went to the halfway house with my kids. Hadn't seen my kids in five years. Well, I'd seen them in like visit, but first time seeing them free. And uh, so they used that saying mm -hmm. that I wasn't supposed to stop and eat is what they're trying to violate me for. But the lady was like a total cunt about it. She was like, listen, you know, I think your message is bullshit. I think you're just another convict. Uh, you know, I saw, I watched your little documentary series. Uh, I don't, I don't fall for any of it. You know, you're going back to prison. I go to, I go to work that day, which was at the studio. I was employed at a studio so I could record. Um, but I wasn't allowed to record. I was having to say that I was just working at the studio yeah. so that I could be there recording. And, uh, so 
I go that day, tell my kids I'm gone. I got to go back to prison for a year. So sorry. They cried. We hugged. Fucking emotional, terrible time. I go back to the halfway house and the staff's like, yeah, man, marshals will be here in the morning to get you. You got to go back. I'm like, all right, man. So I pack up all my shit, you know. My buddy comes and picks up everything so that I don't got, you know, I don't got to tote nothing there. They come wake me up early in the morning. He's like, come on, man. I'm like, oh, the marshal's here. He's like, no, come on. So I go down there and that lady that was violating me is on the phone. And she's just giving it to me. Everything I just told you is what she's saying. I don't believe your message. This is what she's doing. She said, but somebody above me seems to think different. So I'm putting an ankle bracelet on your ass and you got one more chance. I'm like, oh shit. Like I got one more chance. I'm like, okay. So they hang up with her. No, she she's actually in the room. She gets up and leaves. They hit speakerphone on the phone that's in there. And this lady comes across and she was like, I just want to tell you that I love your message. She was like, I'm actually going to start using your documentary as training for my, uh, for all of the federal government staff on transition houses, because we tend to get too caught up in black and white and forget the greatness is in the gray areas. I had to put the ankle bracelet on you because that lady was giving us hell and she wanted it. She was like, but in return, I'm going to give you an extra 10 hours a week free to record your album. She was like, go out there and make us proud and fucking, yeah, it was like, so there's an episode about it on YouTube called Silver Lines. Um, But so I, you know, I had a lot of shit like that happen, you know, that. That's amazing. Yeah. That is amazing. Do you keep in touch with her? No, I don't, but I'm going back. Yeah. Um, actually, Devin was supposed to set it up it's with uh, the charity that does all the federal halfway houses and go back and speak. Oh, man, so, that would be a, Yeah. That would be huge. You know, they, they kind of want, you know, I'm getting to that point now where I've proven that I'm not going back. Yeah. You know, they don't. They're really careful about who they let come back in there. A lot of times it'll be somebody that's like 10, 15, 20 years released. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, um, but I'm getting to that point now where like now I'm coming off of state parole so I can go back into the state facilities. I can go into a lot of these places. Like right now I'm kind of confined to like public schools, which I've went and done, um, public schools. I've went and done some rehabs. So, but now being able to get back in those actual facilities and get clearance to like go into jail, prison, federal halfway houses, and be able to share this with people that are, because I, I share it every night with a bunch of fucking survivors, you know, people that are in that crowd that have been through hell and back. And, uh, but I think it'll be even more effective to be able to do it to the guys that are right there on that edge. Cause when you're coming home or you're about to come home from prison, like that's when you're on that edge or when you're in prison, what are you going to do with the rest of your time? Cause you walk into prison, there's really only two kind of guys. You got the guys that are gambling, smoking, eating honey buns, watching TV all day, maybe working, you know, just getting by really just living that life. 
And then you got the guys that are fucking reading every book they can. They're training like fucking animals. They're better. They're going to every class they can. They're bettering themselves. And as soon as I got to prison, I knew what, where I wanted to be. I didn't want to be fucking smoking cigarettes, which I'll smoke again now. But I didn't want to be in there smoking cigarettes, fucking eating honey buns, watching TV, wasting my time. Yeah. I wanted to become the best person, father, human being that I could become. And I did. I took every class. What kind of classes were you taking? Every, I took every class. I took psychology. I took parenting. I took health and nutrition. I took... Um, I did all the drug programs, um, anger managements, to the point where I was teaching the classes by the time I left. Wow. Uh, because, uh, you know, I, I, of course, I had a passion to grow and to become better, but then that turned into a passion to help others become the best people they could be. And I've always had a good job with, uh, I've always had, you know, been really good at, relating to people you know um made me super effective like when we were in the drug program and i ended up becoming you know like a mentor in there to be able to dig into some of these guys that were stone cold killers that were you know had been through didn't trust a fucking person on the face of the planet you know and being able to crack that shell and yeah. get down in there, you know, and say, hey, bro, you can do this. And I've got a couple of them that I still talk to to this day. I just talked to one. We're talking about setting up a family vacation together. This guy was toughest of the tough, born in a fucking uh, border town, whole family, you know, half white, half Hispanic, cartel running shit back and forth. And this guy had a super rough life. Now he's, you know, making a couple hundred grand a year welding owns his own fucking iron business. Like, Damn. And, and this dude, I didn't think he'd ever make it out of prison. I mean, I did, I saw it in him, but like all the signs were there that he was gonna, if he even got out, he was gonna come right back. Yep. And now, you know, but I, I, I worked my ass off to like really, you know, crack that shell he had. And um, he put a lot of work in and now he's great. He's got all his kids, you know, he's living the dream. You're going to have a lot of impact on these guys. I think so. And I'm really excited for it. And I really think that it would be an incredible, um, incredible phase in my life to be able to go in there and, and do that. I mean, do you realize the, the impact you might have? Definitely. Yeah. Definitely. Which it's uh, intimidating. Yeah. But at the same time, it's like, bring it on. Like, you know, but that comes with me keeping my integrity intact too. That's the that's that's the toughest part about it. Yeah, is like, you know, was, I was telling you earlier that I just recently slowed down on drinking and quit. I quit drinking at shows because I was starting to lean on that and um, saying I couldn't, you know, go out there and perform without having a few drinks. A few drinks turns into a bottle of tequila, and so I'm going out and I'm giving this powerful message every night. And then I'm going back on the bus and I'm shit face drunk. And I'm laying there like feeling like I'm making this huge impact and I'm doing God's work. But I'm sitting here preaching to these people drunk as fuck, you know? And so, and of course I was beating my body up and stuff, but more than anything, it was just that, that um, spiritual battle that I was in, Yeah, you know, like 
You weren't the example that you wanted to be. Exactly. Like I'm sitting there telling them that they can do this, they can do that. All they got to do is get their life right. And half the ones in the room, it might have been alcohol. They might be full-blown alcoholics, and that's what was stopping their life from progressing. And I might have been too, you know. Uh, definitely know that, you know, since I, you know, slowed down and quit drinking, um, I've lost 50 pounds. I'm in the best shape of my life. So it was definitely holding me back from reaching goals that I wanted to reach. Yeah. And I noticed that I'm a lot sharper and stuff, you know. Uh, mentally? Mentally. Emotionally as well. Um, I feel like I'm falling apart. I think that tequila was keeping me good and lubed up. <laughs> <laughs> I, quit, I quit drinking. My knees started popping. I'm like, damn. <laughs> the agave had me, uh, had me fluid. I got to grease the wheel. Yeah. <laughs> But, you know, and even now, you know, I still I still have a drink every once in a while. You know, it's picking your battles. Like, yep. um, if I know that in two weeks from now uh, I've got an event that I want to have a couple drinks at with a couple buddies, I won't drink till then. There's a lot of nights when, you know, friends might be having a drink or a glass of wine. And I'll be like, oh, I can have one. You know, that'd be fine. And I'm like, fuck, I got legs tomorrow. You know. I got, I got a big chest workout tomorrow. I, nah, I'm gonna skip it tonight. Yeah, you know. So I just just setting your priorities. You know, knowing your limits, knowing your boundaries, and finding that balance. You know? Let's talk about God. We need you now. Yeah. When that came out, it was incredible. I mean, so I'll tell you the, how the song came about. Um, Caitlin Curtis an artist that I signed uh, to Angels and Outlaws, my label. And we had been working on her album, uh, working on my new stuff. 2020's in full swing, all right? So, everything's kind of still being figured out. You know, like, Okay, here's this COVID thing. Is it real? Is it not real? The mask, we got to wear the mask. Oh, fuck the fuck these masks. You know, all, all of it was kind of cycling, you know, we're like, as things are happening, we're just figuring it out as people uh, with the information that, not that we're given, because, you know, of course, uh, we're searching for information, right? Mm -hmm. um, anybody that I am close with, you know, we're going to find our own information. We're not just going to be fed what's given. So, so I'm like, you know, I'm reading this stuff and I'm in the studio and I'm kind of on my rants, you know, I'm like, man, this is crazy. You seeing this, you seeing this. And Caitlin wasn't, she didn't, she didn't know anything about right or left or, you know what I mean? Like, um, not into politics. She didn't grow up in a political house. I didn't either. You know, uh, most of my life I thought I was a Democrat cause I was poor and I had food stamps and I thought this was the way it was supposed to be, you know, it wasn't until I became a man, a father, a business owner, you know, a tax paying American that I was like, oh no, fuck, what the fuck? Like, absolutely not. That's interesting. Is that, is that a commonality? Super. Growing up like that, you just automatically assume, uh, oh, we're Democrats. Automatic, 100%. 100%. No shit. Because the Democrats have been so good at masking themselves as for the people, right? with welfare, healthcare, 
you know, racial equality, whatever the issue is, they do a great job at masking. I mean, Malcolm X was talking about it, you know, saying that the, the biggest enemy was the white liberal because they would, they were wolves in sheep clothing. They would mask like they were, and they would always use, um, you know, black powerful leaders to try to get their message out. Right. Um, they've been guilty of that for centuries. Uh, but so I always thought I was a Democrat because, you know, I, I live in the hood. I got, I'm on welfare. I've got food stamps, you know, um, that was just how I was raised, thinking that that's what it was. I didn't know anything about real politics, you know, until I became, until it started to affect my life, you know, until I started seeing taxes, till I started seeing, it's like, hold up, no, I'm not fixing it. I don't want to give 50% of my money so that this person that doesn't, won't get up off the fucking couch can live the same way as me, like, um, you don't like doing that? Oh, absolutely not. I refuse. <laughs> I refuse, dude. Like, when I started getting into conversations about socialism, dude, I literally had one of my favorite artists in the entire world, and I'm not going to mention his name, sit in the studio and he goes, struggle, but don't you understand? Guys like me and you, we just have a knack to make money. You know, we, we have a lot of drive, and shouldn't we give 50, 60% in taxes so that people that are lazy or just don't have the same drive we have can enjoy the same life that we do. It's a real conversation. Yes. This I'm beginning to think that liberal is a mental disorder. Seriously. The, the far liberal. I don't know. Fuck, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I got some liberal friends and, you know, whatever. But, like, yeah, no, they really believe that shit. I literally had an argument with uh, another friend of mine. He's like, I'm like, bro, this is the only country that you can come from nothing and become a fucking billionaire, dog, because of the American dream, because, because, because of capitalism and because of conservative beliefs. And he goes, yeah, I struggle, but in socialist countries, nobody comes from nothing. I'm like, yeah, but nobody has anything past this. You know what I mean? Like, there's a ceiling. You can't, that's the beauty of the American dream is you can go as high as you fucking want if you're willing to put the work in, take the fucking chances, sacrifice. You can have whatever you want. That's yeah. the beauty of the American dream. You know? Um, and yeah, it's a real conversation. Interesting. I've, yeah. I've not had to have you, that yeah, conversation you don't have any before. Friends, huh? <laughs> We, we don't have a lot of that in the military. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> God. Um, so, God, we, we need you now. We have a lot now. of it in the music business. Yeah. yeah. Um, I've heard. So, God, we need you now. So, I was doing my rant, and, you know, um, Caitlin sends me a voice note a couple of days later. She was like, hey, I kind of got this from what you were saying the other day, and this was just on my heart. Boom. And I hear it, and it's that hook. And I'm like, Holy shit, this is a fucking hit. 
you never really know in music, you know, like you can hear a thousand songs and everyone that you really love, they don't. And the ones that you hate end up being the ones you have to perform for 20 years. No shit. Because they love it. Yeah, you never know what a hit record is. You just got to keep recording music and fucking hope the shit sticks. So hold on. Now I'm getting off track, but fuck it. So when you record an album, what, maybe 12 songs in an album, right? 10, 12 songs, yeah. You don't know which one's going to be a hit? Absolutely you don't. You're not like, this is the one. No, you hear it. You say that a bunch of times. Yeah. And you're like, oh, this is the one. And it's not the one. (laughs) It's the one that you're like, fuck, I don't really like this song, but I think they might like it. I don't know. And you put it out, and it goes haywire. And then for 10 years, you got to fucking perform this song that you hate. (laughs) Bubba Sparks, Miss New Booty. Dude, he still gets paid $5,000 to walk in a strip club and perform Miss New Beauty, New, Miss New Booty, and he fucking hates that song. Damn. You know? No shit. Yeah. It's like his <laughs> least favorite song he's ever recorded, but he has to do it because that's what he got. That's, that's the one that blew. But you called this one. I, I called this one. I said, this is going to be a big song. It's going to be great. It needs to be heard, even if it fucking flops. If 10 people hear it and it brings them closer to God and makes them stronger and makes them rally up and fucking feel strength right now in this time of uh, where a lot of people are feeling weak and vulnerable and afraid and fearful, if this gives just a handful of people a little bit more oomph in their fucking fight, then I'm happy, right? But I knew it was a good song. So we released it, it did good. Five million views, I think, on YouTube. It's like, oh yeah, boom. In a couple months, like it was smoking. I was like, oh, this is great. Well, then it starts to die down. We release the next single. Next thing you know, whew, right back to the top. And I'm like, what is going on? Every viral video. Uh Caitlin's working it on TikTok, you know. Um, and it just it translated. And it just snowballed and snowballed. And all of a sudden, I'm watching us climb the charts, climb the charts. And then here's a little, um, what's that weirdo's name? Nas X knocked him out the top. Damn. And I'm like, man, they just, they put a million dollars behind this guy's album. We didn't put a dollar. That means the people are speaking. Damn. Right? That means the, that, and that's, that's iTunes. So that means they're hitting buy. That's not yeah. just people listening to it. That's them hitting purchase. Number one uh, most sold rap song two weeks in a row on Billboard. Wow. During those two weeks, Lil Nas X dropped, um, Cardi B dropped, and Drake dropped his whole album. At one point, I was number one, and Drake had the next 19 slots on iTunes. Damn. For all his songs. Off that album. Had you, had you ever been on the charts before? Yeah, yeah, we hit iTunes charts quite a bit. Like when we first release, we'll have a day or two where we're, you know, on the top of the iTunes charts because we got a great fan base. Yep. This was singles. This was one song. Never had a song do that. Damn. This is and we, you know, me and Jelly had fallen in the fall. It's a gold record. It didn't do that. Wow. So. Um, number one and it sat number one between number one and number five skipping back and forth for like four or five months 
No shit. On iTunes. Now, it was on number one on Billboard. Two weeks in a row was the longest. I think it might have hit two or three times. But um, for the longest, two weeks in a row, that's Billboard. That's every fucking song in the world. That's all genres. Yeah. So well, on the, on the Billboard, it was rap. Okay. Uh, but on iTunes, it was all genres. Yeah. Holy shit. That's fucking incredible. And, you know, I, I tell them every night, I'm like, no record label, no management, no publicist, no big budgets, no marketing strategy, just a song from the heart and the people. And I let them know every night, I'm like, when I watched Lil Nas X and Cardi B get knocked out of that top slot, I, I knew and it solidified that the people's voice is still worth more than all the corporate sponsorships, all the dollars that those corporations can throw around. The power is still in the people. And that song proved it last year. Damn, that's amazing. So. That is amazing. Now I got to try to follow it up. Fuck. <clears throat> so what's what's next? So speaking of that, what is next? Yeah, what so, do you got coming? Uh, got a new album coming. Working on it right now. Um, actually, we'll be recording on it today. Um, album's called Monte Carlo. Monte Carlo. Mm-hmm. When's that coming out? Uh, it'll be out in November. Nice. Uh, Going to start releasing singles for it end of July. Do but you want to make uh, any predictions on what's going to be the hit? <sighs> no, because I haven't recorded half. <laughs> Still working on it. But the, the album, I think, and I think you'll love this concept. I bought an 84 Monte Carlo. Uh, completely original. With all the chaos that I've seen, that I've been through, and the complexity of my life, and all the shit that I deal with, I find my most peaceful moments in the simplest things, in the simplicity, right? So like getting in that 84 Monte Carlo just has a fucking radio. I don't even got a plug to plug the phone up. I can't even charge my phone in the car, right? And just turning on that radio and driving just this basic, you know, 1984, the smell of the seats, the smell of the motor reminds me of my childhood, you know? But it's so peaceful just driving that car. I don't have all the distractions, all the buttons. I can't, you know, answer my phone through the fucking speaker. You know what I mean? Like, yep. <clears throat> it's just that simplicity that brings like a state of peace in the complex, chaotic world I live in. All right. So I said, you know what? I'm going to buy that. I'm going to drive this car every day to the studio. And I want to convey whatever comes from that. The nostalgia of the car, the chaos that I've been through, the peace that I've found, the complexities and the simplicities. I want to bundle that all into one project and tell my story. So it's turned out pretty fucking cool. That's awesome. Yeah. And it's a lot more country. I'm really? Actually, I'm actually singing a lot on it. Um, some of the songs have uh, 80s vibe. Um, 
it's, it's all over the place. It's going to be one of those albums that it doesn't matter what kind of music you like, there'll be a song for you. That's, you know, it's yeah. like going to be that if you were to sit there and run through that radio, that little turn knob radio, and stop every other channel, that's what it's going to feel like. Something's on there for you. Something's on there for you. Nice. So, I can't wait to hear it. Yeah, I'm excited. When you, uh, when you get it released. Oh, before I get it released, I'll send you a link. I'll send Perfect. you a private link. Do you do vinyl? Do you release Dude, vinyl? I have been trying to do vinyl. You know the problem with vinyl, and I'm going I'm to fix it this year. The only problem with vinyl is it's like all these places that print vinyl are like 8 to 12 to 16 weeks. Oh, shit. How much time they need. Yeah. So to order enough vinyl, you know. You're talking about ten, twenty thousand dollars to make a, a nice vinyl order. That's a lot of money to throw away for six months waiting on it to yeah, come back. I got you. You know what I mean? It's like that's an investment. But I am this year. We're gonna do vinyl because I love vinyl. Well, if you do vinyl, I got a request. I need one signed by you so I can frame it and put it up in the studio. This I got place you. like a museum in here. I got you. you. Know? I'm gonna do a vinyl. But uh, man. Best of luck to you. Yeah, I, I can't wait to hear it. And man, I just you and your six six artists under your record label. Yeah, five. I'm the sixth. Yeah. I just wish you guys the best of luck. The oh, message man. you're putting out now, you know, and where you came from, is just. I mean, you don't hear a lot of positive shit in the world anymore, you know. Yeah. And, and from what you've come from and what you've morphed into, I mean, it's amazing. And it can bring a hell of a lot of people hope. And the and the fact that you're going to be going back and speaking, you know, to guys coming out of prison and showing, yeah. and you're living proof, hey, you know, there is a fucking second chance. And if you really work at it, yeah. you know, life can be beautiful. Yeah, and don't take it for granted because yeah. you, on, and, uh, on your end, you know a lot. On my end, I know a lot of guys that didn't get a second chance. Yep. Yep. First time they got hit. First time and it, they're gone. You yeah, know? and so for the guys like us that did get second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth chances, don't take it for granted. Yeah, you got another opportunity. I, you know, I like to tell them every night: if you're here, your story has not ended. Very Do true. not let your past define you; make it refine you. You know, I use the analogy of gold a lot. To make gold pure, you put it in the fire. You pull it out. You wipe off the imperfections. Put it back in the fire. Don't be afraid of the fire. Yeah. Fall in love with those flames. Make them purify you. You got to go through shit to appreciate, you know, the, the you got to go through bad shit to appreciate the good. But like, uh, you know, my whole life, people say, are you ready? And I said, I was born ready. I finally realized I was not fucking born ready. <laughs> I had to go through, <laughs> I had to go through hell to get ready. Yeah. To, to be able to handle to be worthy of and to be deserving of the blessings and the life that I have right now. I had to fucking go through some things, you know, and now I don't take it for granted. And so. Good for you. Yeah. That's incredible. I appreciate it. One last question. Let's get it. If you had three people to recommend to come on this show, who would they be? I would love to see Wes Whitlock on here. 
You'd like to see Wes Whitlock? I, w- I would like to see it, just to see uh, what. what um, have you have you had a chance to tell him? Does he know about you wearing the? Oh yeah, he sent gear? it. He sent it over to us. Oh, okay. That was many. It was a long time ago. Yeah, that's cool. I would like to see that that rekindled. Um, man. That's a hard question. Who do I want to really know the deep, dark truth of? I told my wife outside, I said, man, another 30, 45 minutes with that guy, he gonna get some shit out of me nobody knows. (laughs) (laughs) Get Matthew McConaughey on here. Oh, man. (laughs) No, you know somebody that that would be fucking badass on here? Who? I just opened up for him. And he's a fucking batshit crazy wild and Perfect. real deal. Who Ted is Ted Nugent. Ted Nugent? The Dude. Nuge? Dude. You I know just, him? I just opened up for him in Panama City. Hook Quote, a motherfucker up. I got you. I got All you. Right. I'll, I'll call his wife this week. Perfect. For sure. Let me tell you something. That motherfucker, he is everything you think he is, he is that. He's going on the list. Yes, Ted Nugent. I don't know. Yeah. I might not have three for you, but I got him, and I'm going to make it fucking happen. <laughs> Perfect. Well, man, I just, it was a real pleasure interviewing you yeah, and Thank you uh, so much. getting to know it's an you. It's honor being here. And I just wish you the best of luck to you. Likewise. And your, and, and your family, and um, we'll be watching. Yeah, man. I'll All be right. watching, too. Cool. Cheers, I, got, I got up this morning and was like, who do you have on their last? I was like, oh, great. They got it fucking killed Ben Laden. Like, what am I going to talk about? Like, <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, that's amazing, man. I'm so proud of you. Thank you. For sure. Thank you. All right. Thank you, brother. Cheers. Celebrate the Black Friday sales event at Woodhouse Chrysler Dodge Jeep Ram in Blair. Step into a new Jeep that you can count on. From the awarded new Grand Cherokee to the capable 2022 Jeep Compass, the Jeep lineup won't compromise on power, technology, or comfort. Delivering confidence and convenience for 29 years. Woodhouse Chrysler Dodge Jeep Ram in Blair is your trusted auto partner. Visit us off Highway 30 in Blair or online at WoodhouseChryslerJeepDodge.com. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.